This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for tuning in to our program. I have a confession to make, and uh, for someone like me that thrives on the world of nostalgia, especially things that happened 30, 40 years ago, uh, this may not make me too popular with my nostalgia brethren, but I, I'm not that big a fan of the show Friends. Now, I thought I was 28 years ago when it first started. But And I used to watch it. Thursday night, must-see TV, right? Um, Friends, Seinfeld, ER. And then whatever's on between Friends and Seinfeld and whatever's on between Seinfeld and ER. That was the move. That was the move. And, you know, they never quite got right, the shows between Seinfeld and Friends and the shows between Seinfeld and ER. There were some good shows. At one time, I think Frazier was there. Then they moved Frazier to his own night. Uh, some other shows, like uh, they had, uh, you had Caroline in the City, which I enjoyed. A lot of people didn't like. Again, I enjoyed it 30 years ago. I don't know how good it would be now. I uh, Single Guy, I enjoyed that show with the great Ernest Borgnine. Uh, there was Suddenly Susan with Brooke Shields. But when Seinfeld went off air, I kind of stopped watching Friends. I, I lost, I didn't have any real interest in it. I, I realized that the only reason I watched it was because it was on the same night Seinfeld was on, and I was kind of buying into the must-see TV hype. So my wife likes uh, Friends. My ex-girlfriend, the formerly beloved Mallory, she used to like Friends. So Sometimes my wife will still put on Friends. When I was dating Mallory, she would put on Friends. And I watch it now. I'll be honest. I, I think there's a lot of very, very good acting on that show. Not just in the main cast members, but there's some great guest stars. People like Tom Selleck, Bruce Willis, of course, Elliot Gould, a number, John Favreau, a number of interesting people. And then I watch these shows. I don't find the show funny. I really don't. I, Seinfeld, I think, is timeless. I love Lucy. Timeless. I the honeymooners timeless. I think you'll be able to watch um, Seinfeld honeymooners. I love Lucy 30, 40, 50 years from now and still find it humorous. I don't think that's the case with friends. At least it's not in my case. Now, again, you can't knock what's popular. It's one of the most popular shows in the history of the world. I have a friend of mine. She has a 17 or 18 year old daughter. She wasn't even alive when friends was on. She loves it. So um, clearly there are new generations of Friends fans that are being born. Point is, I'm not really one of them. But I did watch Friends when it was on the same few years that Seinfeld was on. So I will never forget an episode of Friends where Joey is watching Wheel of Fortune. And in comes his roommate, Chandler, played by Matthew Perry, who's very good. and. Joey is staring at the clue, the screen, on Wheel of Fortune, and they haven't yet guessed the clue. And you see it's two words. It says blank, O-U-N-T, next word, Rushmore, R-U-S-H-M-O-R-E. So 
you got a pretty good idea of what the answer is going to be. And Joey certainly had an answer. This guy's so stupid. It's Count Rushmore! <laughs> you know, you should really go on this show. Now, that was kind of funny, I must say. So then they have a little bit of an argument about, you know, a silly sitcom argument about a woman Chandler is dating. And 90 seconds later, Chandler and Joey get into this argument. Chandler is storming out, but before he leaves, he is sure to give Joey a piece of his mind about... Oh, and by the way, there is no Count Rushmore. (laughs) Yeah, then, then who's the guy that painted the faces on the mountain? (laughs) <laughs> okay maybe the show is funnier than i than i give it credit for so mount rushmore one of the most famous sculptures in the history of the world right uh, really it's probably the only key reason to go to south dakota if you don't live there as a tourist right I've never seen it, but I've always been in awe of its incredible majesty, of its historical significance, of its realism. I think it's great. But if it wasn't Count Rushmore that sculpted the faces on the mountain, then who was it? So I, um, we had a Mount Rushmore question in the $1,000 minute the other day, and I realize I'm going all over the place. Just, just bear with me here. There's some semblance of a point coming to you momentarily. And we got an action pack show. We have three guests today, which really curtails my ability to rant. So I have to get all my ranting out now So and all my tangents. So um, we do the $1,000 Minute every day at 4.30, and we've uh, had a couple of people win, and I hope we have more people win. And the way that I gauge the difficulty of those trivia questions is I try those trivia questions out on my wife. And if she comes close, then I figure it's an appropriate level of difficulty. So... The other day, we had a question about Mount Rushmore. I asked it to Rachel. She gets it right, and then we leads to a whole Mount Rushmore discussion. And she says, who is the guy that, um, that sculpted Mount Rushmore? And I said, you know, honey, I am Mr. History. I am Mr. Obscure Trivia Factoid. This is exactly the kind of thing that I should know, and I don't know it. And it's the kind of thing that she thought she knew. And she didn't know it. Needless to say, it was not Count Rushmore, much to Joey uh, Tribbiani's surprise. Does, do you have any idea who sculpted Mount Rushmore? Matt Blaze, do you have any idea who uh, sculpted Mount Rushmore? No clue. And uh, who's back there? Is that uh, it's Avery. Avery. Avery, you have any idea who sculpted Mount Rushmore? No. This is one of those <laughs> things that I feel like everybody thinks they know and no one knows. And I'll be honest, I didn't know who it was. So my wife goes and looks this up, and it was a fellow by the name of... Gutsan Borglum. Who? Gutsan Borglum, who was uh, born the son of Danish immigrants. You want to talk about a true American success story? He's the son of Danish immigrants, and he goes and sculpts one of the most majestic pieces of Americana ever. Now, as my wife is doing research about Gutsan Borglum, she sees that he grew up in the Idaho Territory. She further sees, born in 1867, died in 1940s, further sees that his family, he was a child of Mormon polygamy. His family were polygamists. And then Rachel reads a line, and she doesn't even read me the line. She just says, ew, that's gross. 
I said, what is it, honey? She says, his father, Jens Moller Hogard Borglum, came from the village of, of Borgum in northwestern Denmark. He had two wives when he lived in Idaho. Gutsan's mother, Christina, and her sister, Ida, who was Jen's first wife. So the the father of the guy that sculpted Mount Rushmore had two wives simultaneously. And the two wives were sisters. I said, that's what you're reacting to, honey? You're reacting to the fact that he both of the women that he was married to were sisters? Uh, he, she said, yeah, that's gross. I said, honey, is it, does it make it any worse that they're sisters? Or would it be, wouldn't it be just as gross in your view if it was just two women that were friends or not related at all? And for some reason in her brain, it was much, much worse that they were sisters. And I got to tell you, and maybe this is some deeply rooted psychological a thing in my own brain where there's a part of my own brain that wishes I was also married to my sister-in-law, Sharon. But I don't see uh, the big deal. It, I mean, look, polygamy is a big deal. It's It's got a lot of other negative ramifications. But if you're going to have polygamy, if you're going to have multiple wives, I don't think it's any worse that the two women you're married to are sisters. I think in some ways, Ooh, yes. I think in some ways it's actually a little bit better. I mean, tell me what you think. I'm not asking for a debate on polygamy. But if you're going to have polygamy and you're going to allow the practice of multiple wives, as was widely practiced in Idaho at the time, does it make sense to have two wives that are sisters? 800-848-WABC. There was an episode of um, Tales from the Crypt. Great episode. That was a great show, by the way, with Joe Pesci. Where, if I'm remembering correctly, again, it's been decades since I've seen it. They, they don't, I don't see them replay that show anywhere. That's a show that I'm surprised they haven't brought back more recently. But there's an episode of Tales from the Crypt where Joe Pesci, uh, his character, is married to two wives uh, that are twin sisters, that are two sisters. I think if you're going to have polygamy, I think it makes sense to at least have have women be related or sisters. I mean, tell me if I'm off base on this one. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Speaking of polygamy, I want to thank Donna, who sent me two very interesting articles. They're a little dated, but they are interesting. One is from a PhD by the name of Nancy Webb, in which Nancy Doctor Webb writes: Research shows couples in relationships like this are happier and healthier than everyone else. And basically, the crux of this article is is that if you're in a polyamorous relationship, that's basically polygamy without the marital part of it. If you're in a polyamorous relationship, that that's a healthier relationship than a just a monogamous relationship. And Dr. Webb cites four specific examples. One, these couples place uh, an emphasis on open communication. Well, it makes sense. What do they have to hide from their partners, right? Two, they're less prone to jealousy and sexually transmitted infections. I guess that that makes sense as well. And by the way, I can't independently verify any of the claims that are in this article. Three, they raise, and this somewhat surprised me, 
emotionally intelligent children capable of forming their own healthy relationships. And then lastly, they feel more secure in their romantic relationships. I am curious if that jives with anyone else's experience, because evidently in Canada, and I know we have a lot of listeners in Canada, in Canada, there is a growing number of polyamorous relationships. I don't know if you call them couples or thruples or quadruples, whatever. And the surprising benefits of what they're referring to as the ultimate modern family, a growing number of Canadian parents are polyamorous, opting for consensual, non-monogamous relationships. And uh, the the article uh, from the website todaysparent.com says having multiple partners may seem weird, confusing, or even scandalous to some, but experts, parents, and even kids say it offers some surprising benefits. And it goes through some of the practical benefits when it comes to child care, some of the emotional benefits, and other things like that. So, I'd love to hear your take on both of those issues. One, if you're going to have multiple wives, is there anything particularly better or worse about them being sisters? And if you want to reverse the genders here and have them be multiple husbands and brothers, we can go ahead and do that. I mean, I saw the movie Paint Your Wagon with Clint Eastwood and uh, Lee Marvin. I don't think it was a documentary, but it was interesting nonetheless. Uh, Two, do you buy that... People in a polyamorous relationship are in healthier romantic relationships, more open, more secure romantic relationships. And then lastly, do you think that children that are raised by polyamorous parents are better off? Take that any which way. And then there's some other great stuff that I want to comment on here. There's one of those stories that this is one of those days I wish we had a fifth hour. Let me tell you what's coming up. Speaking of um, COVID, we're going to talk about the COVID vaccine for children with uh, Steve Kirsch. Steve Kirsch is a fascinating guy, Silicon Valley entrepreneur and a philanthropist, billionaire. He is very critical of the vaccines in general, particularly for vaccines for children. So I'm going to do my best to ask him some challenging questions. But if you have questions about that whole thing, including challenging questions, you're welcome to call in. Dr. Philip Metzger, he's going to join us in the 2 o'clock hour. He's a planetary physicist, and he is adamant that Pluto ought to be a planet. I completely agree with him. And then we're going to go live to Moscow in the 3 o'clock hour and talk about what's happening with this Ukraine-Russia war. we got mail to get to. If you want to get your mail read, by the way, just send me an email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at WABCRadio.com. Let me begin with Isaac in Manhattan. Hello, Isaac. Hey, Frank. Great to be on the air with you. Thank you, Isaac. It's great to have you. I've been waiting for this for a long time. I know, right? So, look, you know, uh, I I heard that study, and at first I was, uh, you know, the one about polyamory, the couples having better communication, more emotionally intelligent children, and uh, I was was shocked. But then, you know, I thought about it, I realized it makes sense because – to some degree, that study is going to be, you know, self-selecting. In other words, in 99% of cases, the guy says he wants to be polyamorous. That'll just destroy the marriage. But in the cases where that's going to work out, yeah, you'd already have to be someone with amazing communication skills uh, and probably a salesman, too. Um, 
you'd have to be pretty emotionally intelligent to make that work. So, uh, to some degree, you know, I, I don't know if polyamory is making the marriage better and the children smarter, or if that's sort of just you know one of those self selecting ah, things. Ah, very interesting. So it, it's like one of those things where they say the the kids that come out of Ivy League schools do so much better than the kids that don't go to Ivy League schools. But uh, the the counter argument to that is. Well, because they were so much smarter and did better on the test and studied harder, that's why they got into the Ivy League school in the first place. So that's why they're doing better. It has nothing to do with the education they got at Harvard or Yale. You're saying the kind of person that would agree to a polyamorous relationship is likely to be more open and more secure. It's not the polyamorous relationship that leads to openness and security. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, at the very least, uh, the guy would have to be a master of emotional intelligence to uh, sell this to the uh, lady in question. Yeah, or ladies. Uh, well well ladies said. Ladies in question. Well said, Isaac. Hey, what that's, about that's, what the father of... A killer, you know. What about what the grandfather of Mount Rushmore did where he married two women that were sisters? What's your take on that? My take on that, um, I mean, you know, from a... Uh, I think that uh, it might seem weirder today because... People are sort of imposing some kind of like penthouse forum vision onto this. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, back then, you know, I'm assuming they were Mormons because they were in the Idaho yes, colony. They, yeah, uh, Idaho, yeah, so, Mormons, yeah. Yeah, so, so maybe you said that and I missed it. But, um, you know, so, I mean, you know, they were pretty buttoned up. I mean, you know, it's not like they were uh, doing anything uh, crazy. I mean, it sort of makes sense, you know. I mean, you like the girl, you know, you like the family, you like her sister, you know. I mean, I could, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, uh, I, I appreciate that, Isaac. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. What were you going to say, Matt? I was watching America's Got Talent last week, and there was a guy who was a comedian, and he said he met his wife fifteen years ago, and he was there with his wife and their partner, another woman. In other words, he said we are polyamorous, and the way he framed it was that it was he and his wife mm. as a unit. And then their partner. So it wasn't like it was himself and then he had two women. It was he and his wife were together and their partner. And it made me wonder, like, is this becoming more mainstream? Oh, yes. The answer is yes. Obviously. The answer is yes. Because everybody applauded on, I mean, America's Got Talent. And the way he said it was like... They were together, and then they had another person involved with them. And I wondered, how does that dynamic work? Because if they're a unit, is it like they have to always be together? No, I don't. Do you know? Is it like three people, and then it's just the one guy and this woman, and then the one guy and his wife? Like, how does that whole household work? Yeah, I I think it's, uh, again, I don't know. Like sister wives, you think? Yes. Just not married? I do. Yeah, by the way, if people have experience with this, please call in. I'd love to get some insight on this. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. In uh, just a few minutes, we're going to talk about the COVID vaccine with Stephen uh, Stephen Kirsch, who is a uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur and philanthropist, Luke is in Yonkers. Hello, Luke. Two words, right? Incest. That's well, why you don't marry. That's one word. The sister. I know it's two syllables. Um, it, you don't marry the two sisters because 
when it's the three of you, we all want to mix together. Well, you know, the yeah, I, sisters don't want to mix yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't think they're doing that, well, right? I, I, again, I, I mean, I get the sense that even though there were multiple wives, I get the sense that these these um these first generation immigrants were pretty conservative i don't think they were having orgies and things like that i i think this was you know he has a relationship with one woman and he's got a relationship with the other woman i don't think there was a lot of mixing and matching but who knows i i, I didn't even know who this guy was a week ago so little do i know about his uh, his upbringing and i do want to mention that he himself um, the father of Mount Rushmore moved to Nebraska and ran away from this polygamist lifestyle. He wanted no part of it at all. So uh, he did not did not agree with that. Pete's on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Oh, we just about to uh, get together for Judy uh, Ruby Giuliani. Yeah, we're going to talk about Andrew. that a little bit later. How'd that go? All right, no, I wanted to talk about polygamy because you brought that up. Thank you. And uh, Andre told me about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with my wife right now, and we had a friend that the husband died, and he had a bunch of kids, and we used to help out with them. And I had another girl that the same thing, her husband died, so I used to go shopping with them. Right, more than my one. Well, we weren't married to more than one woman, but I used to show up in the grocery store, and the security guard used to try to figure out which one was my wife because I would take them shopping and try to help out. So, but it's not polygamy because we were never, we had no sex or nothing. But much to the, your chagrin, I'm sure, Pete. Yeah, yeah, it was a chagrin all the way. So nice talking to you, and you got a great show. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. You're the best. 800-848-WABC. Charlie's in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hey, well, Frank. So I was thinking about the two sisters that you had mentioned. Your, your wife, she said, ew, she was repulsed by the idea. But one of the most famous examples of this is in the Bible where Jacob worked with for his father-in-law for seven years to marry the love of his life, Rachel. That's right. Your wife's first name, correct? That, that's but exactly he, right. Yeah. He, he springs a surprise on him and says, ah, we got a, a custom in our family. You have to marry off the older sister first. So he had to marry Leah, Leah the sister, and then he had to work another seven years for the father-in-law to get to marry Rachel. And he, he, he this is one of those famous examples of sister polygamy. Uh, what I wanted to say is that about polygamists who practice this, they consider their way of life more moral and more righteous because they don't they they view infidelity as very bad, like the boss screwing his secretary where the wife and nobody else like knows about that. They find that really, really reprehensible, these like religious like types of Mormons. I knew somebody and I talked to them about that and did all about that and they really view adultery as bad and by engaging in polyamorous or polygamous relationships their point of view is they're not committing adultery. Sure. Well no, no and, and that's and that's that. one of the, the points that um is raised in this article by uh, Dr. Webb. I mean yeah adultery is wrong. Anything that's dishonest is wrong. If you're deceiving your partner, of course that's wrong. If you have a choice between lying to your partner and carrying on an affair for five or ten years versus everybody openly acknowledging, okay, this is what we're doing, 
Obviously, I think the latter is a better situation. Uh, I guess my question for everybody is about my wife's reaction to this this person marrying two women that happen to be sisters. Is that any more or less gross to you? I don't think it is any more gross. Uh, Again, uh, the one person brought up the what he called two words when he actually meant to say two syllables, incest. Um, I don't think that the women are going to be doing anything, you know, intimate with one another. I would be very surprised if that was the case. You know, those the sense that I get with a lot of those Mormon traditional cultures is that they were opposed to any sort of homosexuality of any sort. So I would be very surprised if if that were the case. Eddie is in Nassau County. Hello there, Eddie. Tomorrow, Frank, uh, my understanding about Joseph Smith, who was the founder of the uh, Latter-day Saints, when he proposed that uh, he could marry as many wives as he wanted, his wife replied, she says, well, then I should be able to marry as many husbands as I want. But uh, he didn't go for that at all. Well, hey, look, I guess the gender equality was not as uh, in vogue back then in Joseph Smith's time as it is now, Eddie. 800 Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hello. Three quick things. Only one has to do with uh, polyamory situations. But one, you might, as a New York uh, aficionado, you might be happy to hear, and you could research this, that whole project with Mount Rushmore, the engineers, the lobbyists, the law firm, everything was initiated in New York City. Um, that was all. That whole project came through the, the great minds of, of New Yorkers. How it landed there is a whole long, interesting story too. But obviously, they needed the space and they needed don- it, it, it donated. But it all started from New York City, so that's number one. Um, number two, stop knocking South Dakota. It's a wonderful summer place to visit. If you haven't been, a guy like you should go there because there are great things. You have the Black Hills nearby. You have Deadwood nearby. Rapid Cities are great. If you like North by Northwest by Hitchcock. Rapid City is a, is a great place to visit. It's cool. It's a great way to get away from everything. Oh, that's, you know, that's good. good point. Uh, you know, maybe it is worth checking out then. It's uh, it's not a place that uh, was ever on my list except for right. Mount Rushmore, oh. but I'll certainly check and it out. And there's the crazy. The Crazy Horse Monument is right down the road. Yeah, no, no. Actually, my mom, crazy my mom visited. She had a good time there. Uh, but uh, I will now, to, to pow- back to polyamory, though. Here's one thing: everybody thinks about the fascinating part. The one horrible thing is until they start making beds larger, it's not the most comfortable situation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to think about that. King size just isn't big enough for three. Now, this is true, Gino. Great call. Thank you, Michael's in Manhattan. Hello, Michael. Hey, how are you? I'll talk quickly, but I got a couple of points. In reference to the uh, polyamorous marriage of two sisters, you've got to make sure that each sister has the exact same amount of closet space. <laughs> Number one, can you name the lyricist who was polyamorous and wrote the song Let's Change Partners and Dance? No, to, uh, educate me. I can't. It was fabricated. <laughs> Michael, you never seem to disappoint. You never cease to disappoint except when you're disappointing, I must say. Hey, um, should you get your should I get my child vaccinated with for COVID? I have a seven month old. The uh, the vaccine has now been approved for children under the age of five. And so it's something that my wife and I have talked about. I've talked about it here on this show. Somebody with very strong opinions on that subject is Steve Kirsch, 
He's going to join us in a moment to explain why. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Justin Timberlake bringing sexy back. You know, it's funny. Uh, I always list the bumper music, the name of the music, and the um, and the artists each day in our Facebook group. If you want to join our Facebook group, uh, just uh, search on Facebook Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters. So now, I mean, silly me. This goes to show you why I'm out of touch with modern day mores. If I wasn't interested in the music, you know what I would do? Nothing. I would just keep scrolling. But one fella, seems like a great guy, Paul, he comments on this morning's music selection post, and he says, love the show, truly love it, but not a fan of the bumper music. Takes time away from the show. 30 seconds of music for each break adds up. And I said, yes, it adds up to a cumulative total of 360 seconds in the course of four hours. I need a break from yammering, yap, you know, yapping for four hours. So does the audience. I like the music. The music's a part of the show. It's not separate. It's a, it's a big it's a big part of the show. It's meant to be listened to holistically. But I always appreciate the fa- f- the feedback. That's why it's not just a Facebook group for fans. It's meant for fans and for critics as well. Uh, by the way. I was uh, I came in yesterday last night and I see there's a gift bag sitting in front of Dominic Carter and I said what's the story here you know uh, is it your birthday again and Dominic just laughs doesn't say anything and then Alex Barnard comes in and says hey can you sign that card it's Matt Blaze's birthday today which was of course yesterday until midnight so I did not know that it was Matt Blaze's birthday. Somehow Rita Cosby knew and went out and got a gift and was kind enough to share credit for this birthday gift with all of us. Dominic, me, Alex Barnard, uh, Bob Brown, probably even Avery. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But, um, I, you know, so Rita was very, very nice. As she always is. She's very considerate. She went and got a gift and then allowed all of us to share the share the credit. So um, I'm sorry that I would have – I don't know that I would have gotten you anything, honestly, Matt, but I, I would have – I don't know. I would have said happy birthday at the very least. Well, thank you. I'll did, take it for now. Did you do anything for your birthday? No, I was here. I you, mean, I'm, I'm at I, the point where I don't – Yeah, I know, but you're yeah. here for four or five hours. There's another 19 hours in the day. No, I'm here for eight hours. Eight <laughs> hours are you here for? <laughs> no, I'm not here for this show. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I'm, I'm Dominic show and Rita Cosby. 
I feel like you should just be here for me. I feel like that pre pre Frank Morano time you should be spent <laughs> on show prep. Well, I us. do. I do a lot of show prep for this show. I know, you but know I can, can you really do it while you're doing all that other well before that, show stuff? I have time before, so I do a lot of stuff. All right. But yeah, thank right. you. Well, you're welcome. Happy birthday. Hope you did something fun. <laughs> Sorry I didn't get to make a bigger deal about it, if you even want that. I mean, I don't no, know. I'm like you. Okay. We, right. we just go well, how did Rita find out about your birthday? I don't remember. I must have told her a while ago or something that it was around this time of the year. And she remembered. Interesting. All right. Uh, I want to welcome Steve Kirsch. Uh, Steve Kirsch is a billionaire Silicon Valley entrepreneur and philanthropist and was the founder of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. He's done a lot of other things, not only with respect to COVID, but in life. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Sure. Uh, Good to be here, Frank. So, Steve, give us an idea. Give uh, folks listening an idea of your business background and what you did prior to you getting involved in COVID. Well, I've been a serial entrepreneur, uh, high-tech entrepreneur in um, Silicon Valley for the past 40 years. And I've started uh, seven or eight uh, high-tech companies. A couple of them had billion-dollar market caps. All right. Uh, Yep. So you're you, a high tech entrepreneur. And now once once COVID sort of paralyzed the whole world, you wanted to devote your resources to, you know, trying to treat and deal with COVID, right? Correct. And, yeah, I mean, it was enlightened. So I like to call it enlightened self-interest that I wanted to get back to work and have all my employees get back in the office as well. So I was looking for things that I could do to accelerate the process. Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, you're not, just for the record, somebody that thinks that COVID was not or is not real, right? It's not a hoax. Uh, Correct. I don't believe it's a hoax. Um, In fact, I have COVID right now, so I hardly think it's a hoax. (laughs) Okay. How are you doing, by the way? How's your health now? I'm, I'm doing great. I published the protocol that I used. I've been I was diagnosed on Friday, and uh, uh, it's now Monday, and I'm pretty much over it. There's very little left. Um, I don't even have much of a cough. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. You certainly sound sound pretty good. Now, your group um, has showed a lot of promise in funding the research on something called fluvoxamine. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but, uh, 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 you know, help us out here. What is fluvoxamine and what what was the intended use for fluvoxamine when it first came on the scene? And then what promise did your group show in your use of fluvoxamine? So uh, fluvoxamine is what's known as an uh, SSRI. Um, uh, and it's a basically it's an antidepressant or it's being it's used uh, for people uh, who have a obsessive compulsive disease. In other words, maybe you uh, are constantly washing your hands or touching your face or doing something compulsively. And so it's used to treat uh, that sort of disorder. That's that's the labeled use. Uh, but what we discovered is that it has these very interesting anti-inflammatory properties. And so the thought was that you could use the anti-inflammatory uh, properties of fluoxamine against COVID because COVID damages people because of the inflammatory response. So anything that could reduce that inflammatory response would be like 
pouring water onto a fire. And so this was tested in multiple clinical trials, and it was shown to be effective. And so I'm, I'm using the drug now for treating my COVID, so taking 50 milligrams uh, twice a day. Uh, it's a very low dose. It's um, a fraction of the dose that is recommended by the FDA for treating obsessive-compulsive disease. So you're taking a relatively small dose, uh, basically a third of the the dose that would normally be used, and you're taking it for just 14 days at, at most. And what it does is it prevents people from having any kind of long-haul COVID, and it also reduces your chance of being hospitalized or dying. So it's a very it's a it's a cheap drug. It has very low side effects. When when I take it, it I don't even I can't even tell uh, that I'm taking the drug. Some people it affects uh, differently. Uh, a very small percentage of people can't uh, take the drug or can't tolerate it. Uh, and the the thing is that when you're on fluvoxamine, you want to stay away from caffeine because uh, if you do take caffeine, you're going to be wired for 24 to 48 hours. Uh, after after drinking caffeine, which is not going to be pleasant if you're trying to get a good night's sleep. Sure. So that that's the one um, thing that people need to be aware about. Flu- we're, we're talking with Steve Kirsch. He's the uh, founder of the COVID nineteen early treatment fund. Is, is so my sense that when if somebody goes to the doctor or to the hospital now to seek treatment for COVID, fluvoxamine is not high up on the list of drugs that a doctor or healthcare practitioner is going to give to COVID patients. Why, if your research early on was so promising, something, by the way, that even your critics acknowledge was the case, why is fluvoxamine not necessarily considered one of the top-tier treatments for COVID? Uh, because it works. Uh, anything that works is going to be ignored by the NIH. In fact, uh, we actually... Um, got some inside information that the NIH was actually going to recommend uh, fluvoxamine for COVID because of the the clinical research. Uh, but uh, we heard that they got a call from the FDA to say, hey, uh, don't do that. Just give it a neutral recommendation. So the uh, NIH gave it a neutral recommendation, and the doctors just do whatever the NIH says. NIH gives it a neutral recommendation. They won't use it. So it doesn't really matter what the science says. And in fact, fluvoxamine has the highest level of of evidence in evidence-based medicine, which is the peer-reviewed systematic uh, analysis, meta-analysis, and systematic review. And so, and it's published in a uh, a top medical journal. And so, this is the, this is kind of like winning at the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court basically says, "Yes, uh, your drug works." And so, it's got that highest level of evidence, and all the doctors are supposed to uh, respect that, but the doctors basically do whatever the NIH says. So, Steve, explain to us why the NIH would not want to embrace a drug that works in the manner, you know, for for the use that you use it. I mean, they do allow its use and encourage its use for other things, but not for COVID. Why would that be the case? If it works... It's, I think it, it's a little um, it's a little odd to people that the NIH wouldn't embrace it. Why? Uh, because the NIH is basically uh, Tony Fauci driven, and Fauci has said that hey, the way we treat uh, this the uh, uh, COVID 
is through vaccination. We don't treat it through uh, early treatment except for the drugs from the major drug companies like uh, Paxlovid. So if it's a generic treatment, uh, they're basically told to ignore any uh, generic treatment. That's why things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and vitamin D and NAC and all these drugs that are very effective uh, are completely ignored by the NIH. You know, and vitamin D is like, the, you know, the simplest thing uh, that, that people with very high doses of vitamin D, um, they don't get very sick at all. Uh, if you take an, an aspirin a day, that can reduce your chance of hospitalization by 40%. What do they do? They, they just ignore that. Uh, you know, so there's lots of, of research and there are lots of uh, effective things that people can do. Uh, but the, the direction is basically, hey, we're going to, we want everyone to get vaccinated. That's the way we end this. And, and I think it's the, 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 the original thinking, I think, was that, oh, if we get everybody vaccinated, we'll create herd immunity through vaccination and we'll end this. Whereas if we focus on treatments and people get treatments and don't get vaccinated, then we're going to have a tougher time and we're going to be battling this virus forever. So I think it um, was done deliberately to force people into getting vaccinated okay. yeah. by making no alternative available. I want to come back to the vaccination issue in just a moment. A quick disclaimer, I want to remind folks that uh, Mr. Kirsch's comments are his own and don't represent the views of the station or mine. And my advice is always, not that I'm a doctor, is to uh, talk with your doctor about a health care strategy that works for you um, rather than get your health care strategic advice from the radio. But I was going to ask you, Steve, uh, before we get to the vaccine issue, the, the other treatments you alluded to uh, that have also been very controversial and uh, dismissed by a lot of people in the mainstream of the medical establishment, specifically hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, uh, th- those are also treatments that you think show promise for the treatment of COVID. No, I, oh, absolutely. You know, I always ask uh, doctors who, who say, oh, well, you know, there's not enough evidence on ivermectin is, okay, so show me an example of a drug which has been through 24 clinical trials from all over the world and showed that the drug was gave a positive effect uh, for the, uh, the the primary outcome that they were looking for. Show me an example of where that drug actually failed when it was done, you know, tested through more rigorous uh, uh, trials. And you know, there isn't one. So <laughs> there's there's just abundant evidence all over the place that uh, that it works and there. There are lots of anecdotes, and doctors who try ivermectin typically don't go and and determine, oh, this drug didn't do anything. So, you know, certainly in my case, I got my COVID from my wife. My wife didn't get any treatment at all for her uh, COVID, and she's got a much better immune system uh, than I do. I'm much older than uh, than she is, and I'm immune compromised. And so she was in bed for a week. Um, I was in bed for uh, about a day. So, and I did take the drugs. I took uh, uh, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and I took fluvoxamine. So, 
it's an anecdote, but it's an interesting sure. anecdote, and it's repeated over and over again. And, uh, and then what about what about other m- mainstream um, medic treatments for COVID? Things like monochromal antibodies. Well, monoclonal antibodies are very inconvenient uh, for people. You have to schedule an infusion. You have to sit down for half hour. They stick a needle in you. You stay have to stick around for uh, the the whole infusion time, and then you leave. And it's uh, if you're paying for it, it's super expensive. Uh, whereas these uh, repurposed drugs, you just take the drugs and and you're done. It just it's very convenient. You don't have to have a hospital visit. You don't have to, you know, find the drug and so forth. So it just makes it really, really easy. Um, Art, before we talk about the approval of vaccines for children under five, let's talk about vaccines for the adult population, particularly the at-risk population, uh, senior citizens and people that might have Immuno, uh, immunocompromised related conditions or or other pre-existing conditions. I know you're vaccinated, but a lot of your comments over the last year or so seem pretty critical of vaccines. Would you say you're anti-vaccine? Um, I would say I'm pro-science, and there has not been any data at all for any vaccine in the United States. And so we're not talking just the COVID vaccines, but we're talking any vaccine. There's not been any risk benefit study for any of these vaccines. And they're supposed to be done, but they're not being done most likely because they know that the results will be negative. And so I'm perfectly happy to take a vaccine where there's scientific data that shows that the risk benefit is positive. It's just that there isn't such a vaccine. And so uh, you could call me anti-vax uh, in that I'm not going to be taking any vaccine until I can see the data that shows me that that the benefit of the vaccine is going to outweigh the risk of the vaccine. And so far, there is no data for any uh, vaccine in the United States uh, that suggests that I should take the vaccine. And in fact, um, the, the data shows that, uh, that that I've heard about is that it's uh, – the kids that have never been vaccinated are typically five to ten times healthier than than kids who uh, go through the the normal childhood vaccination schedule. What, when you, and when you say no vaccinations, you're not just talking about COVID. You're talking about any vaccination, measles, mumps, rubella, that sort of thing. Correct. Okay. Well, I mean that is really at odds with 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 the overwhelming consensus of of medical science, isn't it? Oh, um, sure it is. But, you know, the thing is that people don't want to debate this topic. You know, Bobby Kennedy has been trying to debate this topic with anybody in the medical community for 20 years. And the only guy who would debate him was Alan Dershowitz, who's an attorney. Sure. And Dershowitz did it because he's a friend of Bobby. And Dershowitz lost very badly. So nobody from the FDA, nobody from the CDC, nobody from the NIH is willing to challenge Bobby Kennedy on the facts on vaccination. And there's a reason for that is because Kennedy knows what he's talking about and he's got all the data and nobody's going to fool him. 
And so nobody wants to challenge him because they know that, that they would lose. Now, Robert so, Kennedy is also a, a lawyer, and I want to point out, uh, especially because we're talking about medical issues here, your background is not necessarily in medicine or, or healthcare. Your background is in computer science and electrical engineering. So I think a lot of people may hear you speaking so authoritatively on a lot of the, you know, a lot of very, very controversial subjects and think, what makes you more of an expert than the top doctors in the world? Uh, well, the, the, the thing is that I don't, I'm not silenced by the medical community. The, the problem is that the doctors can't speak out against the vaccines and they can't, you know, for example, they can't speak out against the COVID vaccines because they'll lose their medical license. And if they lose their medical license, they're done. And nobody wants to lose their medical license. So no, so people are basically stay, staying silent. So I'm not a doctor. And I'm just a scientist. I just look at data. And when I look at the data, the data is, is, is very crystal clear. Um, so I've tried to debate anybody, and it's not just me that says this. Um, you know, Andy Wakefield, uh, for example, has been saying this stuff about vaccines for 20 years, and nobody wants to debate Andy Wakefield just like nobody wants to debate uh, Bobby Kennedy because they know that Wakefield has knows what he's talking about and he has all the, uh, the stats. So I'm just someone who just looks at, at what the science says, and I'm driven by the science, and I always have been driven by the science, and that's really what characterizes me is I'm, I'm data-driven. And tell me the data and can convince me, and I'm the, willing to change my mind. The data that you've cited, and we're talking with uh, Steve Kirch, and if you want to check out his website, uh, you can do so at uh, vaxsafety.org. Uh, the data that you cited about children who are unvaccinated being healthier than children that go through the normal vaccine schedule – what is the source for that? Uh, uh, Wakefield, uh, Andy Wakefield. Uh, I interviewed uh, uh, Andy recently and uh, broadcast that on my. I've got a, a channel on Rumble, and I, um, so he. I, I asked him uh, point blank on on that question. I said, you know, how much uh, healthier are these kids who don't get vaccinated at all? I said, is it like two x, three x? He says, no, it's like ten x. So. But there are a very small percentage of kids that are uh, that don't go through the vaccine uh, schedule. I mean, it's it's only it's fewer than one percent of the kids in America have parents that that basically have realized that the vaccines are harming their kids and causing autism. Uh, I want to I want to have you back in the future and maybe set up one of these debates with uh, a doctor that's more uh, well versed in medical issues than I am. But I do want to ask you about. Some of the claims that you've made with respect to the COVID vaccine specifically, it's been reported that that has led all 12 members of the scientific advisory board of your COVID-19 company to resign. Is that accurate, number one? And number two, if that is accurate, why would your scientific advisory board be resigning if your conclusions were so well-grounded in data? Uh so, yeah, that's, that's true. So this is the scientific advisory board for the COVID-19 early treatment fund. And a year ago, I discovered that my friends were injured from the vac- vaccine. So one friend had uh, three relatives who died within a week after getting the vaccine. And that was pretty troubling. 
But then a week later, my carpet cleaner uh, shows up in my, my house to, to clean my carpets, and he's wearing a mask. And I find out that he had a heart attack two minutes after getting the vaccine, and he's never recovered from that. He has been in pain a scale of 8 to 10 for the past year. And his wife also uh, had uh, debilitating effects after she got her vaccine in the arm that they uh, shot her up in. And so it's these coincidences that led for me to, to look at the VAERS data. But the, the thing is that I came out and, and did all the research. I wrote a 285-page article that I published in Trial Site News. And a week later, all of these members of the Scientific Advisory Board resigned. And I asked them, well, if I have it wrong, then please tell me how I have it wrong, because I thought I analyzed the data correctly. And they just said, you're wrong, and we never want to talk to you again. So nobody's interested in challenging me on the facts. They're just interested in having their belief system, mm -hmm. because they believe that the FDA yeah. is telling the truth and not lying to them. And so this is about their beliefs versus... What the data Steve, says, I, I have to break, but data. we're interested in having that discussion. So maybe in the next week or two, if I could find uh, somebody that uh, that is willing to engage in an open conversation about this, maybe you'll come back and we'll continue this conversation. Okay? Oh, oh absolutely. I've been looking for somebody to challenge me for a year, and nobody has. I'm going to find someone. That's my my mission. Steve Kirsch, <laughs> uh, check luck. check him out. VacSafety.org. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation? 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now here's Frank Morano. <laughs> This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, those of you that are holding, I don't want to rush you through your points, so uh, we'll hold you over to the top of the hour. We are going to have some calls at the top of the hour that you can uh, that you can take. And in about nine hours, what, what, uh, yeah, nine, two o'clock, in about eight and a half hours, there's going to be a major media event that it could be something big or it could be kind of a dud. I'll tell you what that's going to be in uh, just a bit, and uh, I'm I'm going to try and watch. I won't be awake, but I'll try and catch it a little later. I'll tell you what that's going to be, and if you want to call in on anything we're covering, uh, including Matt Blaze's birthday, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to go through your email next hour as well, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Still to come? Pluto, is it a planet or not? We're going to talk with a 30-year veteran of NASA, planetary scientist and engineer, and then we're going to go live to Moscow to talk with Mark Sloboda, who uh, has some interesting thoughts on this war in Ukraine. Until then, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. In eight hours and 27 minutes, approximately, two of the most controversial people living on this earth, at least in this country, are going to get together. Alec Baldwin, who recently shot someone on the set of the film Rust, he was controversial before that, will be interviewing Woody Allen the world-famous comedian, writer, and director, and he has zero interests in anyone's judgment about it. And uh, Alec Baldwin posted on Instagram the following about this morning's interview that he's going to be doing with Woody Allen. This coming Tuesday... The 28th... It's the 28th, I think. With this coming Tuesday, I'm going to be doing an Instagram Live at 10.30 Eastern Time. 10.30 Eastern Time with... Tuesday, the 28th, 10.30 Eastern Time. Um... I'm going to be doing an Instagram Live with Woody Allen. Love that. I love, I love, love that you, dramatic intonation. Um, Instagram Live with Woody. Tuesday, 1030. Be there. Why is he whispering? Because he's Alec Baldwin. That's his style. That You know what? A lot of times people will confuse good acting with just not being able to understand what people are saying. So if you watch Alec Baldwin in the movie, he, Alec Baldwin's a good actor, don't get me wrong. I think he's a weird guy, but um, he's a good actor. And the film, the, he's in a film called Malice, where he plays this very weird doctor with a god complex. That's a weird film overall. And he whispers the entire movie. And people just were raving about his performance. You know, James Dean, Marlon Brando, if you look at the roles that are most acclaimed for, nobody can understand what they're saying. People think they're the greatest actors in the world. They just Nobody can hear them. People assume because you can't make out what they're saying that they must be saying something interesting. But anyway, I think this is interesting that he's going to be interest, interviewing Woody Allen. And I'm not going to wake up to watch this, but I'm going to watch this. I'm very curious to see how this goes. I uh, look Woody Allen's 86 years old now and I am a huge fan of Woody Allen's films and I have no idea if the allegations about him and his his uh, daughter are true I for most of the time I have had a lot of problems with these allegations I am someone that really did not believe that the sexual molestation allegations are tr- were true. Now, that being said, I think he's a weird guy. By the way, 
You want to know what Woody Allen did? After Woody Allen broke up with his girlfriend, I believe it was Diane Keaton, but uh, it might have not. It might have been another actress. I, I think it was Diane Keaton. Though. After he broke up with Diane Keaton, you know what he did? He dated Diane Keaton's sister. Now you talk about a guy that would have been very comfortable in the Mount Rushmore era. I think it would be Woody Allen. But anyway, um, so. But I, I ha, I'm yet to really weigh in on the Woody Allen document, the uh, Woody Allen evidence these days, because I've been told that that documentary that Dylan Farrow speaks out in is very damning. Dylan Farrow is his um, his daughter that he was alleged to have molested back in 1992 in the attic of uh, Mia Farrow's home. So Woody's always denied these allegations. And then, of course, he went on to marry one of Mia Farrow's other adopted children, Sun Yi, who Woody is still married to. So my, a friend of mine, my friend uh, JFK, I don't think he'd mind me saying, he was, just like me, the biggest fan of Woody Allen's films ever, and he won't watch them anymore. Won't watch any new Woody Allen films, won't watch any old Woody Allen films. And I said, well, what, what did it for you all of a sudden? We've been hearing about these Woody Allen uh molestation rumors for 30 years. Why now all of a sudden do you give them credence? He said, I saw that documentary and I was convinced. I haven't seen it, so I'm not going to comment on it. But I will tell you, the people that were commenting on Alec Baldwin's Instagram, where that video is from, overwhelmingly negative. And these are Alec Baldwin's fans. These aren't people that are put off by Alec Baldwin saying that Henry Hyde should be stoned and he's shooting people on the set of Rust and so forth. But um, comment after comment, no, no, no. People saying they're not going to watch. I'm curious if you're going to watch. I must say I'm pretty curious to see how this goes. I am going to watch. I think it's going to be interesting. And I want to see what issues they tackle. Are they just going to talk about movies? If they do, I think that'll be interesting. Are they going to talk about uh, relationships and people's controversial aspects of these allegations? I think that's interesting. But one of the things that Alec Baldwin said, and I agree with him on, was we don't live in a society, or at least we shouldn't live in a society, where we have trial by HBO documentary. I don't think just because someone makes a documentary about you that portrays you in a negative light, even if it's a very negative light, you should automatically be shunned. So in my continuing effort to stand up to cancel culture, I will be watching this. Will you? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. One other thing I want to comment on real quick here. Again, I need a fifth hour today. I I really – tell Deb Valentine to take her time coming in. I need at least another half hour, 45 minutes. i got too many things to comment on. This is what happens when we have three guests, three interesting guests, no less. By the way, I'm going to talk with Dr. Philip Metzger about um, Pluto in just a minute. Uh, All right, people have been patiently holding. Let me get to the calls, and then I want to talk about the changes that the Biden administration is making to college campuses, which will result in young men that are accused of sexual harassment not getting proper due process. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about some other things that I'm doing. 800 Let me begin with Joe on Staten Island. Hello, Joe. 
Hi, Frank. I'm calling about that Alec Baldwin clip. You got you got to play that again. That guy clearly took some Johnny Depp pills. If you listen to that thing again, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You, it's it's great. You got to. I, I will listen to the interview on Instagram. But that, if you listen to that, it really reminded me of of Johnny Depp in court, out of court, whenever. But he's been in films with Woody Allen, so we'll see what yeah, he has to no, say. Yeah, no, they were in Blue Jasmine, which I thought was very good. And then right. uh, at least one other film uh, they, they did together. I think it was uh, the one that was in Rome or in, or in Italy. So, yeah, right. they've been in right. a couple of, of uh, films together. So mm -hmm. uh, they worked together before. That, I'm sure that's why Woody did it. He's uh, especially media-averse these days. So, um, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. True. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It was uh, To Rome With Love. That was the film that I was trying to think of. And some other films. Uh, there was a film called Alice they did together. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Good morning. I wanted to say, first of all, I sincerely mean this. I marvel how you come up with topics that are constantly interesting. I mean, 95%. It's just amazing. I don't know how you do it. Thank you. Hopefully we'll anyway, get to 100% um, soon, I want to make Charles. a quick comment about the man marrying sisters regarding your wife's... Oh, wow, that's gross. But I really want to, after that, please uh, allow me to say something. Charles, the floor is yours. Say whatever you want. Steve, I forgot his last name, his surname, uh, about the vaccines. But first I want to say, you said that you something like that your wife... Uh, seems to have it on her psyche, on her brain, uh, the the ugh, disgusting part about being married to two sisters. I think maybe, I'm just guessing, that it's not, she's not disgusted about a man marrying two sisters. She was probably in her mind thinking regarding her sister, as well as herself, being married to Frank Morano. And she just couldn't see that picture. Well, you might be right, Charles, because, sisters, because you might not find, um, before, when the news first uh, broke that Hunter Biden had dated, and I'm putting it charitably, had dated his dead brother's wife or dead brother's widow, um, and this was before we knew kind of a lot of the unseemly details of it. Uh, but even at the time, she said to me, if I die, you do not have permission to date any of my sisters. So this is clearly uh, this is clearly uh, an issue she's sensitive about. Go figure. Oh, obviously you're right. You know much more than me about that. I understand. Barely. Um, but I want to make the comment though about the um, the, the, the conversation you had with Steve. What's the surname uh, again? Kirsch. Steve. Steve Kirsch. Kirsch. Everything. I'm, I'm, I was actually surprised, if not shocked. First of all, I want to say. I never believed um, a, a conspiracy theory. I'm just not me. But everything, when you said to um, Steve, uh, you mean the uh, oxychloroquine queen and, and the other thing is, was controversial. I mean, to me, there's no doubt. There was nothing controversial about it. Nothing. I know Dr. Zelinsky, I know him personally, out of 400 people, that many should have gone to the hospital. He gave, if you catch it early enough, the oxychloroquine, whatever it's called, and zinc and vitamin D, and he saved all of them. Nobody went to the hospital. This is documented. He considered what the government did about oxychloroquine that it became illegal to buy it, illegal, uh, genocide. And he's a very thoughtful man, I know. Okay? So, and also take a look at this. If you didn't take the vaccine, you lose your job. Oh, but I have COVID. I have anti uh, antibodies. I'm not going to affect anybody. We don't care. We'll lose, you lose your job. You got to take the vaccine. And what about the a mandate to take the vaccine? What happened to the fact that a woman can abort murder, in my opinion, especially for seventh or eighth month, uh, a child because it's my body? Oh. 
but I have to take a vaccine because the government said my body doesn't count anymore. Which which is it? But again, it, it, to me, it's obvious. Uh, no question about it. About oxychloroquine. It, it, I'm not going to say it's genocide, but whatever. So, are you unvaccinated, Charles? Of course. Wait, so you I decided me- not to take the booster. Not to take the booster. I got you. Okay. I know right. too many stories. I know personally two people that had a heart attack also within two minutes. There's too many stories the government is not telling us. There's no, again, I have no conspiracy theories. Sure. I'm shocked that you would give your five or six or seven months old child with whom you love dearly uh, the vaccine. Uh, you, you, you're too trusting in this case. Well, no, no. Well, I, again, I, and Charles, thanks for the call. I said that we would hold off after consultation with our pediatrician and probably closer to when he's in school. But where I really part company from uh, Mr. Kirsch, well, I I part company with a great deal of what he said. But where I really part company is him saying this this theory that that has been disproven again and again, in spite of what people like Deirdre Imus and Jim Carrey and Jenny McCarthy say, that that vaccines cause autism in children. There is no credible evidence for that. There's not. Um, And so, again, he was a little late calling in, so I didn't get to spend as much time with uh, Mr. Kirsch as I would have liked to. And I am going to invite him back for a discussion with somebody that's a little bit better versed than than I am on these subjects. And uh, my role will be here to be quiet and sort of navigate the conversation in a way that's not necessarily... You know, that's that 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 humans can understand if even if they don't have a medical degree, because a lot of times you just kind of get lost in the jargon. And sometimes they count on that. They count on throwing all these terms at you and all this data at you. And ultimately, your your eyes glaze over and you submit. But um, I am very I still remain very pro vaccine, maybe not for children, but for adults and at risk populations. And I want to point out, as I mentioned, when I spoke to Mr. Kirsch, he's vaccinated as well. So, you know, he is one of the leading anti-vax people out there, but he's gotten the Moderna vaccine. The other thing to keep in mind, again, I don't want to make this a whole discussion when I don't have real experts here to go to. But all of the data about adverse effects from the vaccine, it's all self-reported. That, to me, is not necessarily the most credible thing. I think if it's reported by a physician, that's one thing. Self-reporting effects, that's another. The other thing is, you know, he mentioned someone that he knew getting a heart attack after getting the vaccine. Is there anything to suggest that the vaccine caused the heart attack? I don't think that there is. One, there's no way that you can refute anecdotal evidence. Two... Just because someone, it's like post hoc ergo pro poke. Just because, or pro hoc ergo post hoc. I don't know. I, I, my Latin is not the best. I have to confess. Just because you get a heart attack after you get vaccinated, that doesn't mean that the vaccination caused the heart attack. Um, you, you understand what I'm saying? There's no causal relationship proven there 800-848-WABC Rosemary is in New Jersey hello Rosemary oh yeah good morning Frank morning I really I, I really enjoy listening to your show and um, I had a laugh the other day when I was 
when you were explaining about how you were putting together that day bed with your wife. Thank you. Yes. Um, you mentioned the radio station that your your wife put on. You said that weird radio station. I had a laugh because it had to be the core. What what frequency away. is that? I think it's ninety point three. That, I think it, that, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. Yes. Oh, I had a laugh because I I really love listening to that radio station, and they do play a lot of weird stuff. But yeah, I have nothing against I have nothing against it. It was just it was just bizarre music that was playing. I have nothing against it. You know, whatever people yeah. want to listen to is fine with me. I I just had a laugh. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Rosemary. You're nice to say so. Okay. I appreciate you listening and your nice call. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Diana. Oh, sorry. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. Hello. Two things. Uh, I called about the vaccines, but regarding Woody Allen, we have to separate the person's private life from her or his art. Caravaggio, the artist, was a hoodlum. Goya was brought up before the Inquisition for painting nudes. They're great artists. Polanski, Roman Polanski, is a great director. We cannot throw guys like Bill Cosby and and O.J. Simpson in there as well. No, I don't. No. All right. There's a limit. Okay. There's a limit. <laughs> I, I draw the line at Bill Cosby. Okay. Regarding the uh, vaccines, well, I'm transgender, and I've been on hormones since I was 19. And hormones can cause blood clots, so I cannot get the vaccine. I do a public access television show, and the studio will not let me in. They're being very nice about it, though. They're showing reruns, and I deeply appreciate that. And they told me as soon as the vaccine mandate is lifted, please come back, and I certainly will. But uh, the fact that if the vaccine is so great, why do people have to keep getting boosters, and why does everyone have to get it? If I mean, if all of you have, are vaccinated, what do you care if I'm not vaccinated? And one last thing. I have a friend who is vaccinated and boosted to the limit, and she is dying as we speak of long COVID. Now, she has multiple sclerosis, which may have something to do with it, and type 2 diabetes. But she is as vaccinated as one can be, and she is dying in the hospital of long COVID. So I don't know what to make of that. Well, neither do I. There's no there's nothing that I can cite to rebut the one person that you've just alluded to on this phone call. You know, if I could talk to her doctor and analyze her medical history and the doctor said, yes, the reason she's sick and dying from long COVID is because of the vaccine. Okay, maybe I can deal with that. But uh, there's just no look, I'm sure there are side effects of the vaccine. Uh, That's why, you know, I wanted to give Mr. Kirch an opportunity to call in and comment on this. I just don't think that it's uh, the public health hazard that he is making it out to be personally. All right. 800-848-9222. Gino is in Connecticut. Hello, Gino. Hey. Hey. Hi there, Frank. Hi. Listen, um, who who would know? Better than anyone in the whole world who's really dying and who's not dying from COVID. I mean, I guess the doctors that are treating the dying people. No, no, absolutely not. They're just, they're just covering their butts. In in Sherlin's company, actuarial tables. Would you would you accept those? Uh, I, I don't know. I'd be uh, certainly open to looking at it. Sure. 
Okay? Check them out. And I'm not just blowing hot air. Well, here. and then tell okay. me, what will I find these if I check it published. out? You're going to find apparently these companies, they have their own associations, certain areas, uh, blah, 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 and they do business here and there. But certain certain groups, and these were well recognized names, um, household names, were were seeing on the low end twenty six percent increase, and on the high end, a different group of companies forty percent of unexplained mortalities. All right, between the ages of nineteen and I believe forty nine, which are considered prime time years. I always thought so. But anyway, the facts are there. I, I will, They're you know, I, okay, Gino, I'll, uh, you may view things that way. The way I view things is there's been about 600 million doses of this COVID vaccine given out in the United States alone. If you extra, ex, you know, expand this to beyond the borders of the United States, you're talking about multiple billions of these vaccines that have been given to patients. And in my view, it's indisputable that this vaccination has helped reduce the level of hospitalization and death. And look, I'm not disputing that there could be some side effects. I've seen a lot of things uh, both anecdotally and non-anecdotally related to myocarditis. I'm sure there are some side effects. I think the vaccine is a net benefit to the public, personally. And as far as these examples that uh, Stephen Kirsch cited, that Diana cited of this person got the vaccine and then X happened to them. Maybe X is Bell's palsy or shingles or a heart attack or long COVID. I don't dispute any of that happened. What I take issue with is the fact that the vaccine might have caused shingles or the heart attack or the pain in the hand or whatever. It reminds me of an episode in The Simpsons when Lisa discovers a rock that keeps tigers away. At least that's what she'd have you believe. Ah, not a bear in sight. The bear patrol must be working like a charm. That's specious reasoning, Dad. Thank you, honey. By your logic, I could claim that this rock keeps tigers away. Oh, how does it work? It doesn't work. Uh-huh. It's just a stupid rock. Uh-huh. But I don't see any tigers around here, do you? Lisa, I want to buy your rock. There you have it. That's kind of where we are. Um, Lisa saying as a joke... Uh, or trying to make a point, and Homer is buying it. I think there are some people that are trying to make the same argument with respect to unauthorized, unorthodox COVID vaccination data and conclusions. It's my two cents. Again, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be an expert in anything. So don't call in and say, I don't know anything, because my cards are on the table. I don't know anything. But I will bring people here that... Uh, you know, that can come on the air at the same time with Mr. Kirsch 
and and discuss this in a rational way. Tried to get a couple of um, of folks on today too, but I thought maybe it'd be nice for Mr. Kirsch to have the floor to himself at first. So we'll 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 revisit this in the future. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I do want you to listen and listen well to my conversation with Dr. Philip Metzger. He is a planetary physicist at the University of Central Florida. We're going to talk to him straight ahead. W-A-B-C. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. towards the sky with a telescope, uh, you will occasionally be able to see the former planets known as Pluto. I'll tell you, I've uh, experienced a lot of moments that were very sobering in the radio business, some as a talk show host, some as a listener, some as a producer, and there are very few days as as a producer that I remember more vividly than the day that Pluto was delisted as a planet. And I came in, was producing the morning show at the time, and I came in the next morning, and I guess this is about about 16 years ago, and one of the saddest things I'd ever heard was from a, a little boy that was interviewed on the news. And I, and I edited this audio, and I've been looking for it for the last couple of years, and I haven't been able to find this. But this little kid, probably about six or seven years old, and he sounded so sad and so despondent, and he said to the news reporter that was doing one of these men on the street interviews with him, he said, no longer can anyone go there because it's no longer a planet. That's what this kid said. And I was really sad about this. One, it was kind of cute the way that he said it. But I was really sad about this because on the one hand, it was sad to lose Pluto as a planet. And it was sad to think that there's going to be a whole generation of kids that grow up not being taught that this is a planet. And because, look, you learn about the eight, formerly nine, planets of our solar system, uh, there's going to be a lot of children and a lot of adults, quite frankly, that are not going to learn anything about Pluto at all because it's no longer a planet. And the more that I've dug in to what happened with Pluto's planetary status, the more it makes me upset. 
And a fellow that has written brilliantly about why Pluto is indeed a planet is a guy who is incredibly accomplished, Dr. Philip Metzger. He is a planetary physicist with the planetary science faculty at the University of Central Florida, where he is developing what he calls economic planetary science to help humanity's expansion beyond Earth. He has 30 years' experience at NASA, first as an engineer, then as a physicist. And in case you were unconvinced as to his bona fides, he developed and helped operate spaceflight technologies. He was the co-founder of the NASA KSC Swamp Works, a research and development lab modeled after the Skunk Works and implementing innovation practices borrowed from Silicon Valley. He's a bright guy. He knows about space. He knows about technology. He knows about planets. He knows about former planets. And I'm thrilled he's agreed to stay up late with us tonight. Dr. Metzger, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, fill us in. Why was Pluto delisted and demoted from planetary status to begin with? You know, it's really a complicated story, and we'll we'll try to break it down this evening. But um, it it came about because uh, there was a split that developed since the 1800s between the culture's concept of a planet and what scientists thought was a planet. And normally, throughout history in science, we try to to raise the public's understanding and appreciation of science, and that would mean that over time, the public will tend to adopt the scientific ideas. Um, but in, in uh, planetary science and the definitions of planets, it went the wrong direction for historical reasons. And so then um, th- there grew up this mythology about the definition of a planet. If you go look in any astronomy textbook, it'll tell you that the definition of a planet came from the Copernican Revolution, and it'll tell you that planets were defined as objects that orbit the sun. Well, that's historically not true. It's really easy to go look at the writings of Galileo and Copernicus and all the scientists throughout history, and what you'll find written in astronomy textbooks is blatantly false. Um, But astronomers in the 20th century and the um, Around the time that they ended up taking this vote, they weren't aware of this. They didn't realize that they were teaching a concept of a planet that came from 1800s astrology rather than from science. And so then there was this um, discovery of lots of other planets out there near Pluto. And um, astronomers started to worry. They started to think we're going to have too many planets in our solar system. And so they decided they needed to take a vote to limit the number of planets. And they thought they had historic precedence, not realizing that they were really acting on astrology. And so they voted to say that if a planet doesn't dominate its orbit, or if a body doesn't dominate its orbit gravitationally, then it's not a planet. And so they invented this new idea to restrict the number of planets. And um, the planetary scientists were against it. You know, the planetary scientists proposed a different definition. But the astronomers who study orbits, um, they they wanted orbits to be the definition of a planet. And so they rejected what the planetary scientists were saying. And they went along with this idea that 
ultimately came from astrology. Mm. Uh, talking with Dr. Philip Metzger, a veteran planetary uh, physicist and uh, and uh, an engineer and a, a bright guy. You alluded to the concern that str- some astronomers had that there were too many planets in the solar system. What would happen if a solar system has too many planets? It doesn't tip over into a black hole or something, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, well, it, uh, most scientists that study planets will tell you what happens is that it makes the solar system more exciting, more interesting, and it's more um, it's more inspirational for students when you tell them about all the planets in our solar system um, and call them planets. Like you gave the example of the young boy who was so disappointed when he when he heard that Pluto wasn't going to be counted as a planet anymore. Um, like how many people understand that our solar system has over 150 planets in it? Um, you can say that they're planets or planet-sized bodies, whatever you want to call them. But how many people know that there's more than 150 in our solar system? But the, the problem is people don't know this. And the reason they don't know it is because the astronomers said, well, let's not call them planets. And that effectively took all the excitement away, Mm. and the public stopped hearing about it. And so while we discovered all these planets in our solar system, it ended up being a big secret that the public doesn't even know. Um, You alluded to a vote taken by astronomers on this subject. Who? What was the body, what was the entity that got to cast that vote that that determined that Pluto was no longer a planet? Well, it was the International Astronomical Union, the IAU. And um, we have agreed in science that the IAU will be the organization that, that names things because we want to have common terminology so that we can avoid confusion. But the problem was they overstepped their bounds. Um, when they came up with this definition of a planet, they weren't creating terminology. They were actually doing what we call taxonomy. Taxonomy is when you just decide not just the names, but also the ranks of the different categories of objects in nature and the um, the inclusion or the exclusion of different items from these different categories. For example, um, in the 1700s, we decided that whales are not fish. We decided that they're mammals. And so they they um, took them out of the fish category and put them into the mammal category. Now, that was taxonomy. That wasn't naming because we already had the name whales. We already had the name fish and mammals. It was just a matter of putting them from one class into another. So the International Astronomical Union did not have the, the role or authority to do taxonomy. That's That should be done by scientists publishing papers and arguing over taxonomy as part of science. Um, but they, they overstepped their bounds. Um, they haven't done this for anything else. They haven't created definitions for stars or galaxies or anything. They've only done it for planets. And the reason they did it was because they were swept up in this cultural thing. They thought, oh, no, the culture doesn't want to have a messy solar system, so we need to make it look unmessy. Um, And it was just a big Mm. mistake. Uh, So their rationale, uh, the IAU, 
was uh, primarily due to what they felt was too many planets in the solar system, but also Pluto's size and the nature of how Pluto and what Pluto was orbiting. Is that basically the, 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 the Reader's Digest version of the bullet points as to why they made this decision? Yeah, that's basically correct. Pluto is definitely a small planet. It's not big, um, but the majority of planets in our solar system are small. Um, the solar system favors small objects more than large ones. So there's only one object as large as Jupiter, and there's only three others that we put in the giant category. And then we have a larger number of medium-sized planets like the Earth, Um in, in planetary science, we say that the moon is also a planet. It's it's also a moon, but it is a planet. It's a planet that orbits another planet. And um, we say that Titan and, and Europa and Ganymede, these are moons around some of the gas giants. We say that those are planets. Um, we can call them satellite planets or secondary planets um, that orbit their primaries, primary planets. Um, but there's a there's a, a larger number of the medium ones, but then there's a giant number of the really small planets. Um, and you might say, well, why does it matter? Why would we say that the small ones are planets? And um, because we have an even larger number of comets and asteroids, and we don't say that they are planets. But we really have good scientific reasons why we draw the line where we do between small planets and small bodies, um, asteroids and comets. Um, but the IAU, they didn't want to have this very large number of small planets, and so they came up with the idea of saying that a planet has to clear its orbit. It has to push all the other large objects out of the way, and if it fails to do that, if, it's, if it doesn't act like a bully, then it's not a planet. Um, they just made that up out of nowhere. It was never a, a, a concept that scientists had ever used in doing any science, and we still don't. No scientist ever uses that idea in actual science. But they just made it up in order to keep the number of planets into um, a small number. Why did the rest of the world, and especially the rest of the scientific community, recognize the IAU's authority to deplanetize Pluto. I mean, in some ways, I feel like I'm having the conversation I had yesterday about the Supreme Court claiming powers that weren't granted to it in Marbury versus Madison. Why did the rest of us all sit there like bobblehead dolls? Not you. You've been very vocal. But the rest of the world sit there and say, "Okay, IAU, you say this is no longer a planet. We recognize your authority to do so. Why wasn't there a broader uh, outcry to defy the IAU on the uh, Pluto issue? That's really a good question, and I don't, I don't actually know the answer. I haven't spent much time trying to answer that one. But I can tell you off the top of my head uh, a few thoughts. First of all, there was outcry among planetary scientists. Um, before they took this vote, they, they spent several years trying to create the definition. And the planetary science community was involved in the effort, and we sent a proposed definition to the meeting. Um, it was not, in my opinion, a, a very good definition because it was, even taking a few years to do it, it was too hasty, and we didn't have enough time to work it out. But um, 
the astronomers rejected it, they they took some they embraced an idea that was even worse. And so there was outcry among the planetary scientists. Um, but I think the public was just uh, they just believed what they were told. You know, the IAU told the public that they had the authority to do this. They also kind of lied by telling the public that they followed all the right process in taking this vote, when in reality, they broke their own rules. Um, they, there are rules at the IAU that are defined to maintain scientific integrity, and um, if there is not consensus, then they won't be able to get the vote taken because the scientists will stop it. Um, and they, they weren't able to get a definition because there was not consensus. Scientists were in disagreement over this. And uh, for some reason, they wanted to make a definition so badly that they ended up breaking their own rules. They kept the vote a secret. They were required to advertise that there was going to be a vote for four months ahead of time so that scientists could buy plane tickets and go to the meeting yeah, and sure. vote. But they kept it a secret, and so nobody knew the vote was going to happen. And then on the second day of the meeting, they, they announced to the people who were there, we're going to take a vote on this. There was a big uproar at the meeting. There was rebellion among the various people, lots of anger and emotion. Uh, it was a big emotional event. It was not a scientific process at all. And the outcome of this big emotional event was this crazy definition that nobody uses. Uh, but then they lie to us and they say that they followed the, the procedure that they were supposed to follow when clearly everybody knows in the scientific world that they broke the rules and, and it was not a valid process. So um, it's been 16 or 17 years since that occurred. What is the process for getting it back? And is there a realistic uh, possibility that we could see Pluto become a planet again? Well, so if you ask Planetary scientists like myself, the vast majority of us, we still do call it a planet. So we just say the IAU is out of bounds. They don't have the authority, and, and so the vote didn't count. And we say it is a planet. It never stopped being a planet. And the real measure is this. It's not what a, a small number of people in, a, in an illegal process says um, that doesn't have authority. What does matter is how do scientists actually use the term doing pragmatic science? And, and so we've done the research on this. We've scoured all the publications of planetary scientists, really from, from Copernicus until today, hundreds of years. And we've put the whole history into our papers to show the, show the rest of the community this is how we use the word science. This is the useful meaning of it. It always has been, and it still is. In fact, just this week, I saw in the paper for this, um, planetary scientists were studying the seismology on all the planets in our solar system. And they said the definition of a planet that they were using was it's the, the geophysical planet definition. That's the one that, that I hold to and my colleagues hold to. And, and that says that to be a planet it has to be large enough so that it pulls itself into a round shape, and that also is the point where it turns into a geologically active body. So it has convection in the mantle, and it has volcanoes, 
cryovolcanism, and it has mountain building, and it outgasses, possibly outgasses oceans and atmospheres. But all these phenomena activate and turn on when it's large enough to pull itself into a round size. Just like if it was even larger, then it, it would turn on fusion, and then we would say it's a star. Mm. So the size turns on a a type of physics that is the characteristic that we all know that's what a planet is. So that's the definition we go by. And there was just a paper this week of scientists saying, we're going by the geophysical definition. So they were rejecting the, the definition of the astronomers. And this continues to happen in the published literature by planetary scientists. So I would say, first of all, um, it never stops being a planet. Ignore what the IAU says. They were wrong. They made a mistake. Um, will they ever vote to make it a planet again? I think there's um, there's an old saying that science progresses one funeral at a time. <laughs> That's because just like all people, we get stubborn. And so when people end up making a vote, they created bias and they and it made it made themselves become stubborn. And so. Um, it's going to be hard to get people to say, yeah, we were wrong. Let's go and, and um, admit that we have egg on our face and vote the opposite. So that may not ever happen until that generation of scientists are no longer acting as scientists. And then a new generation comes along. We can we can act on it with less bias. We but, can we can talk about the differences between planetary physicists and, uh, and astronomers and uh, talk about what different people are looking for in planetary st- uh, status. But uh, for a lot of laymen in the public, uh, a lot of what we come to call different things comes from the scientists that we're familiar with in popular culture. And there's no doubt about who one of the most famous scientists that Americans are familiar with, even if he is fictional over the course of the last 60 years is. That is, of course... May I point out that I had an opportunity to observe your counterparts here quite closely. They were brutal, savage, unprincipled, uncivilized, treacherous, in every way, splendid examples of Homo sapiens, the very flower of humanity. I found them quite refreshing. Uh, Mr. Spock, the science officer on the Enterprise, what would Mr. Spock say about Pluto's planetary status? (laughs) That's an awesome way to frame the question. And um, Alan Stern, who is the head of the Pluto mission, he calls it the Spock test. He actually refers to this. So if the Starship Enterprise flew up to an object in space, and they look out their viewfinder, and they see this big, round, complex world, they call it a planet. It doesn't matter if it's orbiting a star or if it was ejected from its star, so it's a rogue planet. Um, When they look at it, you see it's a planet, it's a planet. They don't have to go calculate, did it clear its orbit or not. They don't say, wait a minute, Captain Kirk. We detected there's too many asteroids in the region. It didn't clear out enough asteroids. It must not really be a planet. That would just be ridiculous, and of course they don't do it. So the Spock test is you look out the viewfinder. It looks like a planet. It's a planet. Imagine that. Imagine that. Uh, Dr. Philip Metzger, uh, it is a real treat to talk with you. Hopefully we can chat again in the future. If people want to check out your website, they can go to uh, philipmetzger.com. There's all sorts of interesting information up there. It's Philip with one L. Thank you, Dr. Metzger. Thanks so much. My pleasure.
We'll go through your mail next. Uh, if you want to be heard via email, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Mail straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. One, two, three, come on. We got DJ Cool and Duck Get come Fresh. On. Let me clear my throat, the William F. Buckley Jr. theme song. Without further ado, it is time for me to give um, give a few minutes to the people that prefer the written word to the spoken word. It is time for... from Christopher, email subject, planet. My daughter came home from school singing a song, There Are Eight Planets in Our Solar System, and I wanted to correct her, but I don't want her to get in trouble at school. Isn't that always the dilemma, Christopher? Isn't that always the dilemma? This is a card from Patricia. Frank, congratulations on being nominated for a Morcone Award. Well-deserved. When you win, it will surely be the first of many. You truly have a gift. Over the weekend, while grocery shopping, I overheard two people discussing your show. Isn't that nice? Although it was a tra- <laughs> although it was a tra- <laughs> was a train wreck, the Woman of the Year segment was one of was some of the best radio I've heard in years. Classic, magical, hilarious. Your tribute to your former co-worker, George Weber, was quite touching, quite kind. It is heartbreaking that many didn't want to uh, honor or memorialize him after more details of his life came to light. What he did off the clock had zero bearing on his work life. How unfortunate it is that it's easy to identify others' perceived sins while diminishing our own. Several years ago, I came across the following quote on judgment in general. Judge tenderly if you must. There is usually a side you have not heard, a story you know nothing about, a battle waged that you are not waged, you're not having to fight. Um, Tracy Leah Larusa, it's the wife of Tony Larusa, I believe. Also, that which doesn't concern others doesn't. My best to you, Rachel, baby, Carmine, and family. And then um, she adds a supplementer part of this note. I love this letter. You mentioned that your recent throat discomfort is attributed to acid reflux. I had a good remedy for regular sore throat pl- plain pain. 
Steep one teaspoon of dried thyme or sage in half a cup of water for five minutes. Strain, cool, gargle. This can also be sipped as tea. Just use one cup of water. Thyme and sage are natural antiseptics. That's from Patricia Pauly. That's very nice. I do have to say, I hate to burst your bubble, Patricia, I was not nominated for a Marconi Award. That is something that Curtis made up. So that is not true. It just goes to show you Curtis is the most convincing person on radio. The more difficult it is, <laughs> the, le- the less true it is, the more people Curtis is able to convince of something. All right. Uh, this is from William on the subject of plural marriage. Masters and Johnson called three a triad. Mormons in colonial era tended to call all plural wives sisters to each other. No, these were actually sisters. Uh, in the case of uh, what we were talking about. This is uh, an email from Margo, not Katsimatidis, someone else. Subject, primary. Sorry, I know you're bu- I know how busy you are. I am a regist- I'm registered as a Democrat and want to vote Republican in the primary. I heard you say you cannot vote because you're registered as an independent. Can I vote Republican? It might be me, but I cannot seem to find the answer. Thanks so much, Margo. Margo, if you live in the state of New York, you cannot vote if you're a registered Democrat in the Republican primary. If you're a registered Democrat, you can only vote in the Democratic primary. Sorry, but at least you have primaries to vote in. You got governor, you got lieutenant governor, and then depending on what district you live in, you might have state assembly as well. There's a lot of competitive state assembly primaries. I, as an independent, am going to be humming the Incredible Hulk lonely man theme because I can't vote in anything. This is a letter from Henry. Oh, this is too long. I'm saving this for last next week. I can already see there's one, two, three, three pages and a supplemental article. That is saved for next week. And to our, our biggest fan, from our biggest fan in the Facebook group, Ellen. Uh, subjects, Supreme Court and Little Carmine. Hi, Frank. Once again, I was bowled away, not bowled over, but just bowled away, listening this morning to your explanation of the Supreme Court decisions, as well as your opinion on how these types of decisions should have been made and should be made in the future. Your clarification of the proper role of the Supreme Court and long-term political effects of the decisions made a lot of sense. I actually felt uplifted after your remarks. You explained everything in such a clear, concise manner, step by step. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. It's like taking a college course from a very accomplished professor. Kudos to you. It's another reason why I just can't stop listening to your show. You're just like Lay's potato chips. You can't stop at just one. Best and congratulations, Alan. P.S., if you want to try the splash mat again, maybe leave it filled with water, but in the sun for a while to warm up the water, and maybe turn off the sprinkler. It probably frightened little Carmine. Uh, perhaps. Uh, if we didn't get to your letter today, hopefully we will in the next edition of. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and uh, this is the final edition of As the World Turns, a.k.a. the Republican primary race for governor. What else could happen in this governor's race? I mean, you want to talk about Curtis used to use the term mama drama. I don't know if um, I don't know if he still uses that uh, term, but every day for a race that the the winner of this primary and look, I, I like most of the candidates running. The winner of this primary is likely to go down in to defeat in the general election. But for a race that whoever wins is likely to lose. And that's not my hope. That's just kind of how I see things as a political analyst these days. There is nothing but drama. Yesterday we chronicled uh, Mayor Giuliani's attack at the um, ShopRite on Staten Island. Last night there was a rally right near there at the Bricktown Mall. I know Mayor Giuliani was there. I know Andrew Giuliani was there. And I know Curtis was there. I wasn't able to go because I had some family over. But uh, Curtis called me. When he got there, lost, couldn't find anybody, didn't know where to go. And so, of course, I had to stop doing what I was doing and direct Curtis because, obviously, in, his, in a borough of 550,000 people, I'm the one that he has to turn to to give him directions to a place that I'm not at because he can't find what's literally right in front of him. And um, I crashed and burned. Yeah, yeah, might as well, metaphorically, anyway. So that was yesterday. If you were at that rally... I'd be curious how it went, uh, what the kind, of, what turnout there was, and I'm always, I always wonder if these rallies make a a difference in terms of ginning up voter turnout. I think they certainly do help in terms of enthusiasm. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you were there, I'd be curious as to how it went. Also, I'm curious how you think turnout is going to be today. Polls open in three hours. Now I know in a lot of you have been forced to rearrange your voting schedule because you're going to be watching the Alec Baldwin-Woody Allen interview at 10.30. Hopefully that won't disrupt your voting schedule too much. But uh, I'm curious if you think the turnout today at the polls is going to be as low as early voting was. I saw um, the pollster John McLaughlin was on with John Katsimatidis and Peter King yesterday. All about the uh, he's predicting a victory for Zeldin. I think it's open. I think Giuliani could win it. I could even see a scenario in which Wilson could win it. But I'd be curious what you think is going to happen and what your hope is. Now, here is the uh, the latest on the drama that is the New York State primary race for governor. Um, one is kind of silly and one is uh, very serious. Let me go with the silly first because that's my modus operandi. Her, um, <clears throat> So Harry Wilson bitterly blasted frontrunner Lee Zeldin and a campaign aide as, I hope I could say this, I mean, Bob Grant used to say it all the time, not really the way I like to speak, but I don't really know how to convey what he said without saying this. But Harry Wilson, this is reported in the New York Post, Harry Wilson blasted Lee Zeldin and a campaign aide as scumbags in a text message and then accidentally sent it to his rival. So understand what happened here. Wilson 
called Lee Zeldin a, to use the Bob Grant phrase, and this is the last time I'm going to use it because, you know, it's not a nice word to call people, called him a scumbag, and he sent it to Lee Zeldin. This is what we've done a whole segment on this, an accidental text message where you texting about someone and you send it to that person. Now, this happens. I did this with Chad, uh, our president, when I first started working here. You want to talk about a good way to make a first impression? (laughs) That's not it. So Wilson was fuming over getting called out for condemning an attack on uh, Rudy Giuliani while not saying anything about a Zeldin campaign sign getting defaced with a, uh, which is the other drama that I was going to comment on, getting defaced with a slang reference to murder. And the discrepancy was noted by a Zeldin campaign worker, Ben Weiner, who tweeted at Wilson on Sunday night, but nothing about the anti-Semitic vandalism on a Lee Zeldin sign. That's what the tweet was. Less than 20 minutes later, Wilson sent a text message seeking advice from two campaign consultants. Um, and look at what these S-bags are trying to do. And then he, he added, this wiener punk is a paid staffer on Zeldin's campaign. You can see where they're going with this response, question mark. But Wilson also, it, he sent a group text. He also inadvertently included Zeldin in the group message. Zeldin on Monday called Wilson's angry language pretty shocking. It was absolutely extremely poor judgment on Wilson's part. That's really how he's defined his campaign. Curious if you agree with that. 800-848-9222. In response to the text message from Wilson, uh, one of Wilson's advisors advised the candidate to ignore Wiener's tweet and I act like you haven't seen and do a tweet like, more religious and political hate, this cannot be tolerated. Wilson wrote back saying, I agree on approach, but I think it should be stronger, directionally stronger than the Rudy tweet. So Zeldin on Monday accused Wilson of doing that to cover himself after realizing that he included me in his original text. Wilson ultimately wound up tweeting about um, the Zeldin incident. Now, let me tell you about the Zeldin incident. This is the this is the um, serious part about this. And it's ridiculous that this happens in 21st century America. A vandal scrawled threatening and anti-Semitic graffiti on a Long Island lawn sign supporting Lee Zeldin just days before the primary. The hateful message, which included a swastika and the number 187, was found on a sign in a yard in Huntington. Um, That's the congressman's home turf. The campaign said the number 187 is the California penal code for murder and has been universally adopted as a common death threat. And, you know, there's an image of this. This is horrible. Uh, Lee Zeldin is Jewish. He's very open about the fact that he's Jewish. And uh, to have somebody spray paint a swastika on his lawn sign with this basically veiled death threat Really reprehensible. So give me your thoughts on the race. If you were at that uh, Giuliani rally yesterday, I'd be curious how it went. If you have a prediction, I'd be curious about that, too. Your thoughts on Harry Wilson accidentally including Zeldin on the text. Your thoughts on this uh, anti-Semitic vandalism. 800-848-9222. And if you want to comment on the Democratic primary between Hochul and um, 
Swazi and Jamani Williams, you're welcome to comment on that as well. Now, the Real Clear Politics most recent two-week polling average. Now, I, I don't like to mention polls, and I always say I'm never going to do it, but let me just mention it. Um, shows Zeldin with a heavy lead over Giuliani, over 10 points, which would be kind of a landslide in a four-person race. Curious if you buy that. I don't, by the way. I think the race is much more wide open than that polling suggests. 800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-WABC. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. You know, Frank, it's funny. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, Lee Zeldin was Jewish. And it goes to show you, even if I knew it, uh, Jews don't necessarily vote for Jews. I voted for Andrew Giuliani. Uh, oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Well, now, oh, yeah. now the, do you regret your vote now that you know Lee Zeldin's Jewish? No, not at no? all. Okay, good. Not at all. I mean, I don't, I don't go by that. I think that's ridiculous. I want to say a couple of things. Number one, the vaccine, I agree with you 100%. Had Donald Trump not had Operation Warp Street, we probably won't be dead. So, you know, people complaining that the vaccine uh, gave you this, gave you that. And maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't happen. I don't know. But one thing we do know is that we won't be gone because there was nothing to stop it. You know, uh, and the other thing is, the last thing is, I know why your wife doesn't want you to marry any of her sisters. If God forbid something should happen to her, she wants to keep the Frank Morano experience all to herself. Very selfish. <laughs> I'm not sure that's anything to uh, to brag about. Believe me, uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see, Neil. Thank you very much. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. All right. Speaking, we've covered vaccines. That's controversial. Uh, we've covered polygamy. That's controversial. We've covered um, uh, Alec Baldwin and Woody Allen. They're both controversial. I don't think there's anything more controver- controversial than Pluto and questioning the wisdom of these astronomer gods that have determined it's no longer a planet. Well, if this isn't an, w- enough controversy in one show for you yet... Stay tuned in about 15 minutes because we will go live to Moscow where we will talk with someone who is not of the belief that Vladimir Putin is the James Bond villain that he's been portrayed in the rest of the media. So if you have not yet been shocked by anything that you've heard on this show, be ready. You're about to be shocked. That's our goal. 800-848-WABC, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 open lines if you want to comment on tomorrow's governor's race or if you have any questions about the race. I read the question from Margo. A lot of you may have a question. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Good morning, sir. Uh, just quickly, like you see these... Uh these, it's it's a, a dense political season right now with uh, this runoff. We saw yesterday where very early everybody said, oh, Rudy Giuliani was attacked and smacked from behind. And I would like to say that early on you said, let's everybody calm down a minute with the term smack. I did say that. Yes, that's true. Early on you were like, let's calm down and see what, see what happens when the sun comes up. Do you think it's possible that the Lee Zeldin camp, not Lee Zeldin the man, says, hey, I know what might help us out a day before the primary. You know... Throw a little anti-Semitism in there. You know, I... I here, I'm going to... It's interesting, because the thought had crossed my mind. I'll be honest with you, JR. I don't... I, 
I don't think what? that Lee Zeldin or anybody in any official capacity in his campaign would do something like that. However, I could see a scenario in which an overzealous Lee Zeldin supporter might do something like that and then report it to the Zeldin campaign. Because it is interesting that the information on this did come to the New York Post from the Zeldin campaign. It's not like a reporter was walking down the street and they encountered a member of the public themselves and the member of the public said it to the newspaper. It was the campaign that brought it to the New York Post's attention. So I don't think Zeldin himself or any official capacity in the campaign made this determination to to fake this. I could see a scenario in which somebody that was an overzealous Zeldin supporter that perceived that it might help him, I could see them doing something like this. Okay, I don't, I'm not saying that it happened. I'm not, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that it happened. But I could see a I scenario understand. in which that happens. Let me ask you very quickly one time. If you found, let's say it's a, it's a, a reversal where you found a political sign on your lawn had been, uh, you know, had a swastika painted on it, is the first person you called the campaign office? No, or maybe I would, do you call 911 or 311? No, I would call the police. That, that would be my first call. That's what also seems, and it's, it's unfortunate to say this, because you don't want to go ahead and say, hey, listen, something smells fishy here. But a lot of different politicians are not afraid, even at the highest level, to stoop this low. Yeah. Um, J.R., look, I'd love to say that that can't happen, but unfortunately, we have seen incidents like this. We remember Mort- Morton Downey Jr., he did exactly this. He <laughs> staged a swastika attack for publicity. And look, my, my friend, and he is one of my closest friends, Curtis Lewa, staged his own kidnapping um, for publicity. So, look, this this yeah. This does happen. I'm not saying at all that Lee Zeldiner's campaign did it, but uh, I, yeah, I and do. I hope t- I'm wrong. I, you know what? Honestly, I'm not sure what's worse. I'm not sure it, it's worse if if a, a campaign operative or a campaign supporter would do this themselves, or I'm not sure if it's worse if it's real that someone else actually did this. Because if someone did this on their own, not for any political purpose, then that shows that this kind of hate is out there in our community. What's worse, bigotry or hypocrisy? Right, right. Uh, uh, JR, good good call. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. Harry Wilson is two Big Macs away from being the 63rd county of New York State. <laughs> there you go. Take a cheap shot at a guy try, uh, fighting you know, with his uh, belt buckle there, Steve. Very classy. All right. <laughs> Big Frank... Um, first of all, people should know that Northeast and Northwest Staten Island is a Democratic stronghold. And I always get kind of like uh, entertained when I see Curtis out in Staten Island begging the Italians to vote for somebody that he likes or vote for him because we know Curtis doesn't like Italians. And uh, the thing with Staten Island is, uh, I mean, Giuliani uh, uh, needs a – Andrew Giuliani needs a massive turnout in Staten Island – Zeldin is popular. We know out in Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk County. But I, I don't know where that race is going to go. I think Giuliani is the sleeper in this race. He could win with a big turnout. We know Hochul is going to win the Democratic thing. It's going to be a walk away with that. 
But you know what, Frank, what really bothers me is the biggest issues are never talked about. Like this guy, um, Asperino, he's always talking about he's in the weeds in Westchester County with binoculars. He sees illegals coming. I would like to ask him, what would he do with the illegals inside this country? Would he deport them? That's the question that nobody throws at him. And let me just finish up, unless you want me to hold on the line. Putin, no matter what you hear, folks, is a serial killer who enjoys being a serial killer. Well, uh, first of all, uh, putting the Putin comment aside, because you had so many different ad hominem attacks at so many different people, it's difficult for me to, you know, handle them in the scattershot manner in which you've laid them out. But in the case of Rob Astorino and the and the governor's race, the governor of New York or the Westchester County executive, you're the governor of New York. You can't deport anybody. That's something that the federal government does. I know, but you, have, as the governor of New York State, you have a powerful uh, – you're in a powerful position to influence people inside this country and make demands yourself on, on, behold, on, you know, on behalf of the American people and the people of New York State. That's a high-profile position. And he also could deny benefits to illegal aliens. Well, that's true, in this but state. that's a different that's a different question. And you know, Steve Levy, when he ran for governor, and he's been a guest on the show many times, he made those sorts of issues not deportation, but denial of different benefits a big issue in in his campaign. And look, um, I think it's something that whoever the next governor is, if it's someone other than Kathy Kathy Hochul, it's something that they are going to have to deal with. Um, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens, Steve. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to go live to Moscow in just a few minutes. You want to find me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Let me say hello to Billy in the Queens. Hello, Billy. Hey, Frank, I agree with you. I, with this this primary now, it's all like irrelevant. I, you know, I don't follow politics that closely, but uh, I guess Hochul is going to be the next governor. And you're pretty sure of that too, it sounds well. Like. I'm not sure of it. It's it's the most likely scenario. Now, if um, if if uh, Kathy Hochul gets caught in some major scandal in three weeks, and uh, the mood shifts uh, in New York State somehow, and Harry Wilson, a pro-choice candidate that didn't vote for Donald Trump, gets nominated, and all the stars line up in a different direction, I could see uh, something else happening. Right now, it's it's four and a half months to the election. Four and a half months before the mayor's election in 2001, Mike Bloomberg was a footnote. Nobody thought Mike Bloomberg was even going to be competitive, let alone win. And who could have seen something like September 11th coming? The thing is, you can never plan for a once-in-a-generation event. Um, so for Hochul to lose or for the Democrat to lose, and I'm assuming Hochul is going to be the Democratic nominee, for the Democrat to lose in New York State right now, you need something unforeseen, a once-in-a-generation event to occur. Uh, so you, that's the kind of thing you just can't predict. Yeah, I agree with you, but I'm just – I think this is really going to send the signal that this, this city of state is finished. From what I hear, crime is out of control I don't know if I've any very well, but Rochester, Buffalo, it's out of control there. And these politicians, they're still going to get elected. The ones that think jails don't, shouldn't exist, you know, defund the police. They're going to keep getting elected no matter what. And that's – I look at Curtis. Curtis only got I – helped, I helped to try to get him elected mayor. He only got 20 percent of the vote. Well, in a city I, that was exploding with crime. What does that tell you? Yeah, yeah you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think it tells you that uh, – thanks for the call, Billy. What it tells me – 
is that voters are blinded by partisanship. They go into that voting booth and they vote for a candidate just because of what party they're running with. And uh, look, if you were to vote based on knowledge of New York City or qualifications or anything along that line, Curtis would have won this election. It's just because he was the Republican nominee that he lost. And that's one of the many reasons that I have been an advocate for uh, nonpartisan elections. And I wish we had it. Uh, But uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, We'll see. Hopefully one day. Tommy's on Staten Island. Hello, Tommy. Hey, Chucky. Oh, it's a Zeldin thing? I, 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 I can kind of see it that, that, a, that a, someone spray-painted that on the side because uh, my cousin Paul, uh, he's actually going to work right now. Uh, it was the first time for everything. <laughs> he's got to get back to work. Uh, they, he found a pamphlet on his car over there. Um, over in Arden Heights, that that was talking about Jewishness and and the jewelry of of America and all this stuff, and and uh, the, the meatball that he is couldn't figure out that it was put there by like the white supremacists. Well, or, look, uh, know, yeah, some, I mean, anti-Semitism. Like th- uh, thank you, uh, Tommy. A- anti-Semitism is very alive in society these days. Um, that we see, look, we have callers to this show that are rabid anti-Semites. There are several. The two that most immediately come to mind: you got Joe in the Bronx and Richard in Parsippany. Every day of their life, they're motivated by hatred of Jews. Uh, my sister-in-law is an Orthodox Jew, and she was doing the laundry in her building in Tom's River, and there was a woman there, and she basically said to her husband in earshot of my sister-in-law who, you know, dresses in a conventional Orthodox Jewish manner, she said to her husband, well, I hope more of them don't move in here, meaning she hopes more Jews don't move into their apartment building. Now, I mean, who would say that in general, let alone right in front of the very same person that you're being discriminatory against? So anti-Semitism does exist. So um, I don't know if that if this is an example of that. And again, I don't know which is worse. I don't know if it's worse if um, this was staged or if it was motivated by hate. Both are just terrible. Hey, speaking of uh, going from bad to worse, the one thing that I think everybody agrees on is that this situation in Ukraine is a disaster for the world. It's a disaster for the people that are dying. It's a disaster for the people that are spending a lot of money. It's a disaster for the worldwide economy. It's a disaster for those of us that like things like wheat and oil. It's bad and getting worse. We're going to talk about it uh, with Mark Sloboda as we go live to Moscow straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
This is Bon Jovi. Raise your hands. Uh, by the way, there's a wonderful scene in one of the great Mel Brooks films of all time, Spaceballs, um, that has this song in it and it features John Candy as Barf. It's very funny. And I was thinking of that movie, Spaceballs, today. I almost pulled the audio from the scene because there's a very funny joke towards the end of that picture uh, that has to do with the planet Pluto. Very funny, and it's very punny. Uh, in fact, maybe I'll, I'll link to it in the Facebook group. Um, just go on to uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, and uh, you can join the Facebook group, and I will, I'll link to it there. Meantime, I am really pleased to be joined live, I believe, from Russia by uh, Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is uh, an interesting guy. He is a Moscow-based international affairs and security analyst and a former contributing political analyst at RT. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, thanks for having me. It's uh, an honor and a pleasure to be on the Midnight Hour. Uh, so how you're, you're American, obviously, right, Mark? Um, I uh, have immigrated to Russia, so technically, I guess I'm a dual citizen. Okay, so uh, but you were born here in the United States. Sure, and, I served in the uh, military for six years, uh, I, nuclear engineering. And how did you how did you end up in Russia? Um, well, I do have Russian roots. Uh, my family is kind of a mixed Slavic uh, blood: uh, some Russian, some Slovak. Uh, I think there's one Pole in there. Um, so there's that, uh, but, uh, I had been out of the Navy for a few years and I was, uh, working in Boston, uh, doing some engineering and I, uh, met my wife at a nightclub there and, uh, she's from Crimea, uh, from Russia, uh, formerly Ukraine. Mm. Um, and, um, I followed her back to Moscow. She was, uh, doing her, um, MBA at Harvard and, um, we met and I followed her back uh, when she was finished and I've uh, been here more or less ever since. How do you make a living out there? Uh, I teach. Uh, I, I've uh, taught at uh, Moscow State University. Um, uh, after uh, my uh, military career, I went back to school and did uh, at, in London for a few years, actually, five years, and did my postgraduate in uh, international uh, relations theory and strategic studies. Uh, so um, I've taught at Moscow State University. I've taught a few different places in Moscow, uh, but I also do some geopolitical risk consulting and a lot of media work. Now, um, one of the concerns that listeners would raise when I would uh, talk with anybody in Russia, be they Russian citizens, American citizens, this is even before the the skirmish with Ukraine, the war with Ukraine, but it has been underscored multiple times since this uh, this war with Ukraine began. Is a lot of people basically say, listeners of mine say, you can't believe anything that folks who are in Russia are saying about what's actually happening because they're not in a position to speak freely. Now, let me ask you that, uh, Mark. Are you are you being prohibited? from speaking freely about what's happening there, either to me or in general? Yes, actually, Boris Badenov is right behind me with a gun to my head right now. Uh, and, I mean, this is absurd. I mean, there are Russians who say the same thing about any American, and you can't trust anything they say, and they don't have any uh, agency in their media, and it's all controlled by 
six giant corporations who are in league with the government and conspiracy theory and tinfoil house at the door. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I certainly I have uh, regularly uh, criticized the Russian government very loudly on a number of things. They're probably not the number of things that someone who uh, is a, say, a Western liberal would criticize the Russian government for. Uh, but uh, I speak my mind and I use uh, Russian media, whether private or state, as my own platform uh, whenever I feel the need. And I think uh, I would never claim to be objective on the situation in Ukraine because my wife is from Crimea. Right. Uh, my family, I have family in Simferopol right now, and we also have family all across East Ukraine in Donbass and Kharkov and Odessa. And uh, they're the people of East Ukraine, I think, are a voice that has been deliberately expunged from the Western media because their continued existence does not fit the narrative that uh, the U.S. government would like to tell you. Uh, but, you know. Go figure, half the people of Ukraine weren't happy when their government was overthrown in 2014 with uh, open U.S. support uh, and Victoria Nuland's cookies. And, uh, you know, they've been fighting a war for the last eight years. Russia, you know, just intervened in that uh, when Kiev refused, the U.S.-backed regime in Kiev refused uh, to fulfill the Minsk Accords that they had agreed to. Okay, uh, Mark, let me let me get you to slow down here because yeah. uh, a lot of, a lot of, I try to follow this stuff pretty closely, but a lot of our listeners, they're fed a steady diet of what's on the mainstream news and that differs greatly from the reality that you're describing. Now, the the conventional narrative of what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and has been happening for the last few months is something pretty close to uh, Vladimir Putin is a uh, bloodthirsty James Bond-style villain who uh, invaded a neighboring sovereign country that didn't attack him, that was just sitting there minding their own business. And here comes Vladimir Putin not only to invade this country like a modern-day Hitler, but to do so in a particularly bloodthirsty manner. Where do, does reality, in your view, differ from this this narrative that uh, both mainstream, left-wing news outlets and right-wing news outlets are selling the public on? Yeah, well, I mean, just about everywhere. I mean, first of all, uh, perspective from here is that Ukraine has not had been a sovereign country since its government was overthrown in 2014. Certainly, that's the way the people of East Ukraine feel. Uh, and polls in Ukraine, you know, conducted in the last few years show that. They feel that their government that they had democratically elected was overthrown in a violent and unconstitutional U.S.-backed insurrection. Uh, I mean, if, if people think January the 6th, when, when a bunch of yahoos, uh, you know, walk past lo largely passive security into the Capitol building, uh, uh, took some selfies in the Capitol building and collected a, a few uh, souvenirs unlawfully and then went home. If that was an insurrection, I get news for you. Uh, because what happened uh, in Kiev with dozens of police officers being killed, hundreds injured and endless waves of being burnt alive by Molotov cocktails and, and so forth. And which isn't to say that this had no support. It had support of almost half the country, but the other half disagreed with it. And that led to eight years of conflict where the U.S. backed 
regime in Kiev was killing its own people in East Ukraine, shelling them every day for eight years. Um, and, uh, of course, those people are dismissed. They they don't matter. Those were the, reframed as pro-Russian separatists and, and then denied all human agency or uh, uh, concern or, or anything. But the truth is, in the conflict right now, Russia intervened in a conflict that had been going on in Ukraine for eight years. And there are 10, there are Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict. There are tens of thousands of East Ukrainians fighting with uh, uh, Russian forces against a US-backed regime in Kiev. This is both a civil conflict a proxy conflict, and uh, probably a nascent World War III. Um, in your view, does Vladimir Putin deserve any of the blame for what's happening here? Sure. I think he should have. I, I've said this since 2014. When he let the government of his neighbor be overthrown unlawfully, unconstitutionally, when the president was begging for Russian intervention at the time, and uh, he was too concerned with his prestige project of an Olympics at the time uh, to do anything about it, to help to support a government that was under pressure from uh, you know, a lot of extremists, a lot of normal people, but uh, also backed openly by foreign powers. He should have done something then. And the fact that he didn't and allowed himself to be lulled into thinking that, that this um, farce in Kiev would co eventually collapse under its own weight when it has been propped up with an IB of tens of billions of dollars of Western taxpayers' money for the last eight years. You know, I, I blame him. Uh, I, 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 the fact that he has to go in now uh, with military force to, uh, you know, on one hand, protect the people of East Ukraine, on the other hand, to uh, protect Russian national interests of, of uh, NATO bases uh, being built uh, in a country next door. Um, you know, I, I blame him for that. Uh, he, he should have acted back then when there was no Ukrainian military that was responding to to uh, the new regime in Kiev. So uh, Putin's they, they blame deserting in tens of thousands. In your view, uh, Putin's blame is due to not intervening earlier when the overthrow yes. of Yanukovych uh, was that that's what it's limited to. Not necessarily anything related to this Russian invasion or incursion of the military into Ukraine. Well, the first few weeks uh, of the intervention, the first two or three weeks was a bit of a feces show. I don't think there's there's mm -hmm. any question there uh, whether the you know, the actual plan, uh, you know, you have to assume it came from the Russian general staff from uh, from um, Gerasimov and, and from the defense minister Shoigu. Uh, I don't know how involved Putin was, but he had to give the OK on it. And I mean, any logical I mean. From the Russian government's perspective, they're not at war with the Ukrainian people. Again, there are tens of thousands of Ukrainians fighting with them. They're fighting a U.S.-backed regime in Kiev that seized power in 2014. The logical thing would be a decapitation strike that took out the regime in Kiev quickly without doing a lot of damage in the country. And I said right away to my wife, well, they better have a good plan for a decapitation strike or this is going to be long and ugly. Well, they had a plan. It wasn't a good one. It strung out a lot of Russian forces and got a, a, a lot of Russian and Ukrainian boys killed needlessly and has ever since. Uh, but that that was uh, a bad show.
that was a bad plan mm. uh and it 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 got uh it, i i think a lot of it was due to failed intelligence more than than the military um i think they uh had people in ukraine uh within the regime and out that were supposed to rise up and uh they didn't and i think the cia had clearly uh compromised that already and uh it 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 got it turned into the, the long and ugly conflict instead. It was reported yesterday in a lot of Western media outlets that Russia appears to have been have uh, defaulted on its debt for the first time since 1918. Um, this is after a whole bunch of American sanctions, a whole bunch of Western sanctions. Uh, one, what do you know about the reports of a Russian debt default? And two, yeah. how have these sanctions on Russia worked out for the Russian economy and from what you know of on the economy for the countries that are instituting those sanctions? Yeah. OK, so uh, first of all, the idea that Russia I mean, this is a forced default, quote unquote. Um, Russia has plenty of money. Uh, first of all, the West. Uh, the U.S. in particular, but uh, Brussels as well, they stole $600 billion from the Russian government, uh, you know, that was uh, in Western banks. Um, uh, second of all, Russia still has hundreds of billions of dollars of savings, right? Unlike the United States, which, say, has $30 trillion of debt, Russia runs a, a tight fiscal ship and has been for the last uh, 20 some years. They've got plenty of money. In fact, they've got more money now than they did at the beginning of the intervention because of the increase in the price of oil, of gas, of wheat, of metals, of, of all these commodities uh, that, uh, you know, is blowback from the Western sanctions. But this comes from the U.S. Uh, and, uh, you know, its client states in the EU. They have weaponized their control of the global uh, financial system and they are physically preventing Russia from completing the transaction to pay the debt, uh, you know, their nominal debt that they have for credit purposes. Uh, that is is just, you know, it's it's a few tens of millions of dollars, which, you know, to governments like this is it's nothing. Uh, but it's it's like being you're on your way to the bank and you are physically held up and not allowed to deposit your money in the bank. That's that that's what it's like. It has nothing to do with with the Russian you know government not being able to pay its debts. They are being prevented and they've actually paid them with rubles. Uh, and uh, right now, the ruble is the the world's best performing currency, um, <laughs> uh, you know, despite what Jen Psaki told us about the ruble being destroyed. Actually, it's stronger now than it was significantly stronger now than it was before the intervention in February. Um, but, you know, the U.S. Is, is taking the opportunity that, oh, it should have been paid in dollars. And if it wasn't paid in dollars, it doesn't count. And Russia's in default. It's not. And no one pays that any serious. It's just another PR move in an info war. As to the war of the sanctions, now it would be wrong to say that uh, the sanctions haven't had any effect on the Russian economy, but I guarantee you that for the moment, they have affected the lives of taxpayers in the U.S. and Europe negatively more than they have the average Russian. Uh, how much are you paying for gasoline at the pump oh, right uh, now? Oh, five dollars. Yeah, five dollars. Yeah, it's about two dollars here. Uh, that, 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 Must be that's nice. Must be nice. Yeah. Send us some. Um, we're yeah. If people just tune no. in, we're, we're, talking, <laughs> we're talking with Mark Sloboda. Uh, he live from Moscow. Um, 
One of the things that we see trumpeted on the news, and I just saw it on one of the news uh, channels on one of the TV screens here at the radio station, is a lot of attention paid to the brutality in which the Russians are handling this military operation. There was a report just yesterday that there was a Russian missile strike at a shopping mall very early on. There was a lot of attention paid to a maternity ward that was uh, that was that was destroyed. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, called the Russian government the largest terrorist organization in the world just a couple of days ago in a speech uh, to the world. As as you see it, is the Russian military being particularly brutal in their treatment and their execution of this war. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, this is ridiculous black PR disinformation. It's a war, right? Uh, whether we're talking, you know, the U.S. destruction of, of Fallujah and uh, Raqqa in uh, its invasions of Iraq and Syria, you know, the shock and awe campaigns, um, it's a war and innocent civilians get killed as collateral damage no matter what. And it's always a tragedy and it, it always happens regardless. Um, you know, past the pundit talking heads, if you talk to real American uh, Russian military experts like uh, Michael Kaufman at the Center uh, uh, for New American Security, and he's also uh, uh, the head of Russia analysis uh, at the uh, Navy's military assessment board, um, he points out you know, grudgingly that that Russia actually, particularly in the beginning of the conflict, really went out of their way to the detriment of their own forces to minimize casualties as much as possible. And they're still doing that. But the defense that the the Kiev regime is fighting using residential buildings as firing points and headquarters and, you know, using shopping centers as, as, uh, you know, storage for missiles and artillery rounds and so on. Uh, and then, then client crying wolf and, and, and thousands dead, right? Okay. That didn't happen, right? It's as real as the ghost of Kiev or the Snake Island hoax or the bombing of Baba Yar or the bombing of the Chernobyl nuclear plant. There has been so much disinformation out of the regime in Kiev and as part of their info war. And there's no question they're winning the info war, at least on Western social media and, and media. Um, that's, of course, their own playground. But, uh, you know, they, they, they have handily winning it there in their echo chamber. Uh, but that, you know, doesn't change the reality on the ground. And if you take a look at the civilian casualties uh, for the scale of the conflict that's happening uh, in Ukraine right now and compare it to civil civilian casualties in the relatively lower intensity U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, it comes out quite favorable. You know, it's funny. The uh, I have been saying for a while that uh, I think it would be wise for America to try to facilitate a diplomatic end to this dispute between Russia and Ukraine instead of bragging about how American officials are not talking to their Russian counterparts in those same jobs. And when I've said that a couple of times on the air, uh, I've been accused of, um, you know, uh, Chamberlain-style appeasement. And um, a couple of things have happened since those early appeasement accusations were thrown at me and to other guests that have been on this show. One is Vladimir Zelensky has come out and said that we're, they're losing between 
50 and 200 Ukrainians every single day. As oh, well- no, they've upped it. They've upped it since he first said that. It, Actually, they're saying now between 200 and 500 are dying every day. Well, th- that's precisely what I was going to say. So, injured. L- let's yeah. say let's say on the conservative end, it's only 200 Ukrainians that are dying every day uh, for, as this war continues. Uh, what, I just don't see who's being helped by this refusal by Washington to engage in diplomacy. Then we see in Politico Europe, they reported a day and a half ago that Boris Johnson told Emmanuel Macron that a move, meaning settling the war in Ukraine, would, quote, give Putin license to manipulate both sovereign countries and international markets in perpetuity. Uh, Give me what you make of the appeasement argument and of what Johnson told Macron at the uh, G7. Sure. I mean, you know, it's this kind of the gutter of uh, journalism and politics that everything inevitably gets referred to World War Two. You know, it's it's I think they believe they call it Godwin's law, don't you? I mean, it's the end of of any rational discussion of 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 anything uh, to, you know, to reduce everything to, to Hitler. You know, everything I everyone I disagree with is Hitler and every situation is comparable to that. Okay, Uh, you know, that's ridiculous and pointless uh it no more so than the u.s invasion of iraq or libya or syria or serbia or so on was was hitler um so um as towards the lack of u.s diplomacy uh or you know british diplomacy or anything to end the conflict you're presuming that they want to end the conflict and that they want uh, to save ukrainian lives that they they're concerned about that the opposite is true all right. Um, I mean, and Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, uh, Biden's secretary of defense, has been very open about part of that, saying that their goal right now is to weaken Russia. Right. The longer the conflict goes on, you know, they view this as giving Russia their own Vietnam or their own Afghanistan, uh, although they've been, been involved in an Afghanistan fighting U.S. backed jihadis before, of course, as the Soviet Union. Uh, but um there's a bit more to it than that. Ukraine is a national identity divided country along eastern and western lines where they disagree about what it means to be Ukrainian. And western Ukrainians because of their history, their culture, right? Their their collaboration with Nazi Germany in World War II, they 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 weren't part of Ukraine for centuries there. They look either to the west or to their own nationalist elements and they hate Russians. In East Ukraine, it's very different. They're Russian speaking and they largely look at Russians as either part of the literally part of our family or, you know, a brother people next door. And Ukraine has had a divided politics since 1992 that's been balanced internally and externally by staying neutral. And until 2014, Ukraine had a constitution that that, you know, they had to be neutral. That was part of their constitution. They weren't allowed to join any outside military blocks and so forth. And the whole events of 2014 and since has been tried to force the national identity conception and politics of West Ukraine on the east of the country by force. And what the U.S. is hoping that every Ukrainian that dies in combat with Russia has a family that then hates Russia forever, no matter, 
you know, what side of that line they were on to begin with. And you have to remember that Ukraine has an entirely conscript army. Men between the ages of 16 and 60 are literally not allowed to leave the country. They all have to register for waves of forced conscription to go to the front, to go to the Eastern Front, you know, if you will. Uh, but, um, you know, when they die there, their families, you know, rightfully, uh, you know, feel aggrieved. And they're hoping that enough Ukrainians mm. die that, that Ukraine then, uh, you know, permanently shifts uh, even in the east of the country, its feelings towards Russia. So Mark, the more uh, Ukrainians that die, it's better. I, I have to have you back because there, there's pages of stuff that I want to get into with you that I haven't. But one last subject that I want to bring to your attention is it was it was talked about by Janet Yellen, the American Secretary of the Treasury, a couple of days ago, and it was seems to have been codified in Germany at the G7 meeting. Evidently, the G7 is moving towards capping what price uh, Russians can sell oil on. He was Janet Yellen a couple of days ago. <laughs> During our visit, we've also discussed how the United States and Canada can continue to stand united on measures to end Russia's brutal war against Ukraine and mitigate its impacts around the world and at home, including higher energy costs. Russia's war demonstrates that while we need to boost production of fossil fuels in the short term, it is strongly in our interest to adopt energy technologies that break our dependence over the long term. We are talking about price caps or a price exception that would enhance and strengthen recent and proposed energy restrictions by Europe, the United States, the UK, and others that would push down the price of Russian oil and depress Putin's revenues while allowing more oil supply to reach the global market. V very quickly, Mark, let me get you to comment on uh, what, what what Janet Yellen is uh, saying there and this plan for price caps on Russian oil. Yeah, this is ridiculous hubris. Does Janet Yellen think she's going to tell China and India, you should not pay more for this than this for Russian oil that you're buying? I mean, that's absurd. <laughs> the U.S. doesn't control uh, the world. It certainly doesn't control China. It doesn't control India. It doesn't control the global market for oil. All of their sanctions have only risen the price of oil. Uh, the, the attempt of the EU to survive without Russian oil and gas has risen the price of both around the world. Russia sells a little less and makes more money because the price of what mm. it does sell increasing to China and India is that much higher. It's it's a, a ridiculous hubris. It's a ridiculous plan. It will have just as, as much catastrophic effect uh, and embarrassing effect for the U.S. as the previous rounds of sanctions. I mean, when, when have sanctions ever done anything? I'm, Mark, I'm not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. Mark, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I uh, hope we can talk again soon. Thank you for the time. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you want to comment, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Leave 
The great Sam Cooke singing Bring It On Home To Me, uh, a song that uh, has been a hit for a lot of different people. Uh, but uh, I don't know that anybody sings it quite like Sam Cooke. Hey, um, so I appreciate Mark uh, Sloboda's time. We covered a lot of ground with three different guests, but uh, we have one more hour to go. Uh, no more guests, so that means you and I will have an opportunity to chat. You want to comment on anything we've covered thus far, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I'll probably try and do something fun next hour. I did want to get to the changes that are being made in terms of how college campuses are investigating sexual harassment, but we may save that for tomorrow along with uh, primary results. You know who's going to be here tomorrow? Uh, O.B. Murray the noted political consultant and crisis communications expert. We may put together a panel of people. See, it depends on how close these elections are today. I mean, if they're super close, then they're going to require a lot of analysis. If they're not super close, then uh, I don't know. I mean, you don't really want to hear a whole show about a landslide election one way or another. But So we'll have a post-election analysis. And you know who else is going to be calling in tomorrow? Ty DeLorean. The man that claims to be the son of John DeLorean, and he claims a lot of other things as well. We'll get into that as well. Um, open phones if you want to comment on anything we've covered. 800-848-WABC. Until next hour, your influence counts. So you this is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I am a guy that loves a good portmanteau. Do you know what a portmanteau is? I, I imagine most of you do. I use them all the time. I make them up on my, uh, on my own all the time. A, a portmanteau is a combination of two words put together to form a new word. You know, for instance, uh, frappuccino, or you know, the, when you the combination of uh, croissant and donut, they call the cronut, right? Um, the um, gerrymandering combination of uh, Elbridge Jerry and uh, salamander, affluenza, which is a combination of uh, affluence and influenza, hangry, combination of hungry and angry. There's all sorts. I mean, you, you, I mean, there's probably we could probably think of a thousand examples. That's not the purpose. Of brunch. Brunch. Great. Well, who doesn't like brunch? That's not the purpose of this discussion. I mean, meanwhile, you can comment on other issues, um, and we'll get to them. But speaking of energy prices, you heard John Katsimatidis in that promo just now talking about American energy prices. You, talk, you heard my conversation with Mark Sloboda a few minutes ago 
talking about worldwide gas and energy prices. Well, as summer's heat is sweeping across the country, a lot of people might, and now that school is going to be out, a lot of teachers are off for summer vacation, a lot of students off for summer vacation, a lot of people in a vacation mindset. Gas prices are freezing a quickly growing number of Americans into staycation mode. Staycation, one of my favorite portmanteaus. A staycation, if you're not familiar with the term, all it means is a vacation where you really don't travel. And according to the Quinnipiac University uh, polling analyst, Tim Malloy, they have done a poll released last week in which they showed four out of ten Americans said they've changed their summer vacation plans as a result of gas prices. I can understand this. Um, I was running low on gasoline yesterday, and I was just hoping I was going to have enough money in my checking account to cover the cost of getting home, um, to fill it up just enough to get home, because, you know, I'm kind of tapped right now in terms of both gasoline and money. Uh, today's ride home will be an interesting adventure. But 58% said they have not changed their plans. Four out of 10 Americans, 40%, said they had. That's up from the same poll back in March when 30% of Americans said they've changed. So understand, March 30th, 30% of Americans told Quinnipiac they were changing their plans because of gas prices. Now that's moved up to 40%. So the latest poll from Quinnipiac shows that more than 6 in 10 Americans said the price of gas and consumer goods is the economic issue that worries them most right now. So, one, I'm curious if this applies to you. Have you changed any of your vacation plans because of gas prices? 800-848-WABC. But whether you have or not, there are... A number of fun things you can do if you happen to live in New York for a staycation. But there are a number of fun things that you could do if you live anywhere for a staycation. So I thought it might be fun. I looked up online a bunch of fun staycation ideas. I'll share with you some of the ones that I came up with through thinking of them on my own and finding online. But I thought it might be fun if you have a fun staycation idea, a suggestion for something that someone can do that doesn't involve traveling too far, doesn't involve getting on an airplane, doesn't involve driving more than a half hour or 40 minutes from wherever they happen to be. So they might be something that's unique to our area, New York or New Jersey, or it might be something that's fun to do from anywhere. I'd love to help people listening to us plan a fun week's worth of activities for a staycation at home. For instance, um, one is easy. This is obvious to me is catch up on some much-needed sleep. That would be number one on my staycation agenda. Uh, Another one is create your own resort experience at home. Isn't that clever? So, And it goes into detail about 
setting up a comfortable couch or patio set in your outdoor space, serve your favorite drinks while listening to a fun vacation playlist. You can even hang some outdoor twinkle lights so you can enjoy the party all evening long. Um, I feel like we do that pretty regularly. A beach day, that's a fun staycation idea. A craft night, uh, attend a sports game. You know, certainly now with the Staten Island Ferry Hawks in our area, there's no no more there's more options than ever. You got the Brooklyn Cyclones, you got the Staten Island Ferry Hawks, certainly you got the Mets and the Yankees. Uh, free events in your city. No one has better free events than New York or maybe Atlantic City. You can do a food tour of your city. Um, there's visit your local library. That's a fun staycation idea. Hiking. That's a fun staycation idea. Uh, so. I'd love to help people who are listening to us right now who are counting on driving down to the Jersey Shore or driving out to the Hamptons or driving up to Lake George. And they've now been forced to reconsider this because of energy prices. And they have to they have some time off and they'd like to do something fun, but they're not able to fly anywhere. They're not able to travel anywhere too far. I want to give them some good ideas. So what do you have? 800-848-WABC. Here's one which I thought was really fun. And I've never thought of this, but I'm going to see if my wife is up for this. Swapping homes with a friend. Isn't that creative? I would not have thought about that without um, looking that up online. As a fun staycation idea, find a friend and swap homes with him or her. Isn't that interesting? There was a movie with Kate Winslet. I think it was called The Holiday where they did that. I mean, that was a little different because one of them lived in Great Britain, one of them lived in California, but it was it's the same kind of premise. It's a new adventure. 800-848-WABC. You're welcome to comment on any of the other issues we've covered as well. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Hey, Frank. Uh, first of all, let me just say, you're a Russian guest. You've had him on before, is that correct? No, this was the uh, first time I've ever had him on. Okay. I could listen to him for hours and hours and hours. Here's the question. Now, he said plus things about Russia, but he also said negative things about Russia. How many, how many incidences has the news reported over the last couple of years about people who have said negative things about Russia and have been poisoned, murdered, disappear? What is your opinion as far as where he is, as far as honesty and integrity? Is he a mouthpiece? for Russia, or is he somehow able to fly under the radar and just speak his mind? Well, I'll be honest. I, I He struck me as not being a spokesperson or a mouthpiece for any agenda or for Putin or for anything like that, because he was very critical of uh, of some of the things that the Russian government and Putin had done in the um, aftermath of the coup d'etat in Ukraine back in 2014. So I, I think he was giving his honest view. I, I think... Maybe people speaking openly, as you know, I have spoken with Vladimir Posner before, and he said the same thing. I think maybe speaking openly and freely in Russia doesn't get you the death sentence that a lot of people in the Western media seem to think it does. Uh, I got to tell you, I hope you have him on again because he was fascinating. Uh, it's just one of the better guests. I mean, you have great guests, but one of the better guests I've heard in a long time like I say, to repeat myself, I could listen to him all day and all night. 
Well, thank you, Larry. That's very nice of you. I appreciate it. We will have him back, no doubt about it. 800-848-9222. So far, it's not getting a lot of good, fun staycation ideas. If you have one, give me a call. 800-848-WABC. Here's one. Go stargazing. And it suggests even maybe set up setting up a campsite in your own yard or something, going camping in your own backyard and doing some stargazing. That would be fun. Believe it or not, that's something I've never done and would like to do. Uh, I think that would be fun. I don't know if, you know, my seven-month-old is much in a outdoor camping mood just yet. So maybe we'll wait till he's a little bit older for that one. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, uh, I was going to ask you about the Russian caller. <clears throat> Did he say he was a Russian citizen first or an American citizen? An American citizen first, but he uh, was of Russian ancestry. Oh, but he wasn't, quote, a because he said he'd have dual citizenship. Right. So he, he was just, he, yeah, he lives in Russia. He was born in America. But he doesn't really have dual citizenship. Yes, he, he does. He's a Russian citizen well, how, and how, an American how, how, citizen. Uh, I thought that was illegal for us. No, so no. We could, I, I, we, so I, as an American, can become a citizen of Italy if, if they took me. I could. Yeah. So well, I, mean, I don't know your I don't know your specific situation, but I could because my grandfather was from Italy. Italy would extend um, citizenship to me. Yeah. We do it with Israel. We do it with Italy. Uh, my friend is a, a dual citizen of uh, Ireland and the United States. Uh, yes. Vladimir Posner. I, 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 who's been on this show, is a citizen of three countries. He's a citizen of Russia, the United States, and of France. You see, I was under a false impression that they could become citizens of the United States, but we could not become citizens of their country. I was misunderstood. I'm glad to know that, because my grandfather's from Italy, too. Also about your staycation. Uh, well, it's not mine but, specifically. I'm going to help out the well, listeners in general, yeah. Right, right, right. Well, have, have a, since you're staying at home, have some kind of a, a luncheon or a barbecue or something and invite all the neighbors that are next to you that you don't know. That's a good one, actually. We are planning on doing something uh, like that in a couple of weeks. I think that'll be fun, especially because we have some uh, some new neighbors moving into uh, our area. 800-848-WABC. I like that one. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to yeah. comment on a guess, but also on your first interview have your wife get this audio book that I read and someone else thought it was an eye-opener called Dissolving Illusions uh, by Susan Humphreys. It goes on the history of viruses. It's another co-author, and it really goes through medical journals and newspaper articles going back to the 1800s. That's a real eye-opener on vaccines, viruses, so that's dissolving illusions, Susan Humphreys. But on the gas, uh, you know, this is going back in time, but, like, I remember visiting a friend at the time in Montana, and I had worked there, and I went back for a visit. This goes all the way back to college, and I had him, you know, driving me to Yellowstone from, from Glacier, and, of course, you know, they want you to pay for at least, you know, a percentage of the gas if, the, if it's your idea. You know what I mean? So that's another thing. If, if you do have an idea for a road trip and you're having someone else doing the driving, you know, you're, it's, it's only protocol to, to pay a good percentage of the gas 
it's your idea. You know what I mean? So what happens in that case when it, when you're paying double and all of a sudden it's eating into, you know, the budget of, of the immediate moment? You know what I mean? I think I do, Joe. I think I do. Joe and Ron Konkuma, you have a good, a fun staycation idea for people? Yeah, well, um, I'm taking uh, two days off, shockingly, Frank. Uh, my birthday's on Monday. Oh, so, nice. Um, a Sunday, um, we're going to a Splish Splash on Long Island. If you buy the tickets online, it's uh, they're $20 cheaper. Uh, we can't afford to go anywhere this year because it's just the gas is ridiculous. And uh, we, we, we just, on, on my birthday, we're just going to basically chill in the backyard. I bought some nice palm trees that I have on my deck, and we listen to some nice music. I'm going to enjoy a nice cigar and just spend it with the family, you know? Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so uh, those are those are two good suggestions. Enjoy that, and I'm sure I'll talk to you before Monday. But if I don't have a happy birthday, here's one that's interesting: um, a puzzle day. You know what? A puzzle in a communal setting can be a lot of fun. Um, here's one that I always like to do: be a tourist in your own city, visit local museums, historical spots, nature parks. Public art displays, art galleries, gardens, and more. Some cities offer admission discounts to local residents. You know, isn't that true? Is that there's all these things that you don't end up doing in your own city unless you're bringing a tourist. Like, how many New Yorkers have never been to the top of the Empire State Building or walked across the Brooklyn Bridge or visited the Statue of Liberty? Those are all kinds of things that you do if you have a tourist that's in town visiting. Give me some other fun staycation ideas, not just for me, but for people listening. 800-848-WABC. Audrey is in Queens. Hello, Audrey. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Um, hi. hi. I just want to comment on the gentleman that was speaking earlier. That was, I think he was from Russia or Ukraine or something. And I'm just happy that you gave him the opportunity to express himself because a lot of times when I listen to the radio stations, a lot of these hosts, the minute uh, somebody try to say something about, uh, you know, the United States or Russia or whatever side they may be on, they cut them off. So I was happy that you gave him the opportunity to speak because at least sometimes what happened is, you know, when we get the news here, sometimes we don't get the full story. So when you have somebody from over there, who kind of shared his story. It's also interesting. So I was just happy that you didn't cut him off and you allowed him to talk. Oh, well, that's very nice of you, Audrey. Thank you. Yeah, what I try to do on this show is, no matter what the subject is, I try to find as many different points of view as possible, but especially if it's a point of view that's not traditionally heard in most of the rest of the media. So uh, that's one of the things that I, I think makes this show kind of special. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you, Audrey. 800-848-WABC. So far, with the exception of Joe and Ron Konkuma, we're not getting a lot of great staycation ideas. You can always count on Joe and Ron Konkuma. He's always there for us. Where are the rest of you? Kick a little into the content kitty. You're absorbing all this content, all this information, all this entertainment. Give something back. 800-848-WABC. Mike's in... Queens. Hello, Mike. Hey, how you doing, uh, Frank? Good. I was just uh, noticing on the guy you had on, uh, there were some key words that he was using that really sounds like an FSB plant. 
Uh, I don't know where you found him, but, you know, 30 years as a journalist and covering uh, conflicts overseas and uh, real soldiers and real sailors. There's a lot of terminology when he was describing his Navy career and his role in the military that just didn't sound right. Uh, first of all, anyone who's ever served in the Navy doesn't use the term military. They say they were in the Navy. They say the ship they were in. They don't say they were a nuclear service systems engineer. They say what rank they had, what ship they served on. So they're aware that's a key word. We were taught that when we were journalists embedded overseas because the FSB does send people out to, you know, spook guys like us. Now, uh, as your staycation idea, uh, there is something called rails to trails where you can, I believe it starts a little bit past Yonkers. You can take your bicycles and ride all the way up to Ithaca and their campgrounds all along the way. Wait, wait, from where? How far down does that go? It goes all the way up to Ithaca, New York. Um, I believe it, it, it runs through the mountains. I'm not sure that's the Adirondacks. So, but, but but where it, but can it like can you get it from Queens? They're old railroad lines. They're old railroad lines. That have but been how far south? Into, I understand the concept. How far south can you get it? I believe it starts just a little past Yonkers. Um, wow. You, you go up. These are old railroad lines, and uh, I haven't done the other end of it. I haven't done this end. But when we used to live up near Buffalo, uh, I've heard about the, the, the trails coming down, you know. And uh, just just thinking about it, that's a really nice vacation. You're not using a lot of gasoline. I love that. And that's a great up, suggestion. There is a, web, there is a website. It is called Rails to Trails. It is a program where they took these old railroad tracks, these old railroad lines, ripped them up, and they made trails going up all over upstate New York, coming from almost from New York City. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a great suggestion. Thank you for that, uh, Mike. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't give any credence to your theory, though, uh, with respect that Mark Sloboda was not really a in the Navy. I mean, he served six or seven years aboard the Navy vessel, the USS South Carolina, a nuclear powered cruiser. And uh, he was a non as a non commissioned officer in the electronics and an electrical field. He achieved the rank of petty officer, second class. Received a lot of awards and citations, including two letters of commendation for superior performance in supervision and electronics repair, as well as being selected by chief engin- the chief engineer as an operator for two consecutive operational reactor safeguards examination. So that's not the kind of thing, if he was so brazen in putting that out there and making that up, that's the kind of thing that the Navy would put out a statement, I would think, and say, we've never heard of this guy. So uh, I, I don't think that's true. 800-848-WABC. Patrick is in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Frank. Hey, the guy's right. That uh, uh, rails to trails thing, we got this here in Connecticut, too. It runs, like, all the way from the Long Island Sound all the way up to, like, uh, the middle of Connecticut. It's great. You know, if you've got a bicycle. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a great idea. And, you know, I think a hike in general is a very, very fun staycation idea. You know, there's so many hiking trails in our area, depending on where you live, that uh, I think that could be a lot of fun for people that were counting on going somewhere far away and are now forced to stay home. Yeah, uh, the original thing I was calling about though was uh, when we used to uh, 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 in uh, the 1970s do the circle line around the island of Manhattan. It was great. 
the, oh, the circle line, um, you know, the 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 ship the, or the boat, right, uh, the right. bus. They were boats. They were boats. Right. You could get on the boat downtown, and and it took you all the way around. Yeah. Know? How much does that cost? Yeah. Do you have any idea? Oh, back then it was probably like two fifty, maybe. Right. But how about now? In I mean, the people. 70s. I'm if, talking about in the seventies. Right. But what if someone wanted to do it now? Because it strikes me as still a pretty good idea. I don't even know. Circle line still running. I don't yeah. Know. All right. Well, well, thank you, Patrick. I, I would love to give people some suggestions of things that they can do now, including, you know, uh, all the same. Gloria just sent me a, a nice note here. Take one of the New York ferries to Rockaway, an hour trip with a breeze and much to look at. All kinds of ferry trips around the various boroughs. That's sort of in line with what Patrick was suggesting. I think that's fun. And, you know, Staten Island Ferry is free. And if you want to go to Midtown, you could take the uh, the new fast ferry, which I still haven't taken yet. I want to try that. That's not free. It's the price of a subway ride, basically. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. You know, believe it or not, the, the Staten Island beaches aren't too bad if you just want to stay local and not waste gas. Take a beach chat, talk to your friends, some beers in the cooler, go fishing by the pier over there. You know, uh, that's a great idea. Some of the beaches are nice. I don't know that I would eat any of the fish from the Staten Island beaches, though. Do you eat the fish or you throw them back? Definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, I wouldn't wear, I, I wouldn't really go barefoot either. I don't like the sand on those beaches. But if you're just going to stay low, because usually we go down to the shore and stuff like that. But now with gas, we don't want to go over the bridge. Well, Right. That is what I think is leading 40 percent of Americans to tell Quinnipiac that they're not that they're forced to rethink their vacation plans because, you know, who can afford to fill their tank? 100 percent. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, my car, I got a brand new Hyundai. It's a year old. It used to cost me twenty dollars to fill it. Now it costs 50. That's 30 dollars. more. Oh, no, I know. I know. I, I believe me. Just driving back and forth from work, Paul, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, we both live in Staten Island, so, and, you know, now, it ain't that bad going to work. I work during the day now. I start later, so it's hard to catch the show, but I still catch it. How, how dare you, Paul? <laughs> Using the gas, if I had a different car, like, other than a four-cylinder, I'd be hurting. <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. Uh, thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. I don't want to hear about work as an excuse for missing the show. You can't listen. You know, you know where to find the podcast. Uh, if you ever do miss this show, by the way, you can just search the other side of midnight on any podcast app, whether we're talking Spotify or iTunes or whatever you or a, a cast box, whatever your favorite podcast app is. Just search the other side of midnight with Frank Morano and uh, you will automatically get this program downloaded to your iPod or to your mobile phone each and every day. Great way to make sure you never miss the show. And if you do that, even if you hear the show live, you will get some uh, very clever episode titles that uh, Alex Barnard works very high, works very hard on. Lamar is in the Bronx. Hello, Lamar. Okay. Good morning, Professor Morano. I owe morning. you so much greetings, man. I owe you so much greetings, you know. But, um, yeah, okay, quickly. The guy that just called up talking about that bike trail. Right, rails to trails, he called it. Okay, all right. The trail, okay, Professor, look. It comes all the way down to Van Cortland Park. 
well, in the Bronx, right great. next to Yonkers. Yes, that, that's, yes. That's tremendous. That, okay. All right. Yeah, that's a, okay. That's where it starts at. It starts somewhere like, okay, toward the end of Van Cortland Park. Not, okay, not on the Broadway side or on the Jerome Avenue side, I would say. I'm going to try and uh, check this out. I'm not going to go all the way up to uh, Ithaca, but I'm going to go a little. I'm, uh, you uh-huh. know, I'll check this out. It sounds fun. Okay. All right. Yeah, I just wanted to put, you know, place like, you know, the proper spin on that. Yeah, no, know? I'm glad you did. I'm glad you know, it starts a- in the five boroughs, not up in Westchester. Thank you for that, Lamar. Um, my Uncle John says a food tour. You know, a food tour is great for a, a city like New York. Because you can do all the ethnicities within a day or two. With really, with, within the day, if you pace yourself, you can do Italian. You could do Chinese. You could do Japanese. You could do Mexican. You can do uh, Cuban. You could do French. You could do uh, every ethnicity in the world. Um, old school Jewish cuisine, you know. Uh, and then my friend Bill Marco suggests walk the High Line. That's a good one. As well, a great staycation idea if you happen to be in the area. But, you know, there are some staycation ideas that are good for you wherever, you know, that you can do from wherever you happen to be, like the the uh, puzzle night or board game night, for instance. Hey, um, it's a lot easier to afford to fill your gas tank if you have $1,000. Why don't we give some away? So we're going to give an opportunity to win $1,000 to the seventh caller. At 1-800-848-9222. If you're the seventh caller right now, you'll get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can answer them correctly, then you will win $1,000. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We're going to go ahead and do the $1,000 minute straight ahead. WABC. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno with you until 5 o'clock, and then you'll get to hear the uh, WABC early news with Deb Valentine. And then, of course, the Bernie and Sid show from 6 to 10. On the Bernie and Sid show today, uh, they have Bo Deedle on at 7.40. Former Republican candidate for governor Jack Chitterelli is going to be on at uh, 8.40, and he look, looks like he's running again. So basically... Jack Chitterelli, assuming he runs again in 2025, he ran in 2017, but he really started running in 20, uh, you know, in 2015, I guess. Right. So he'll have been running for governor for 
No, let's see. 2021, 2025, 2017. So he'll he'll have been running for governor for four, eight, twelve, about fourteen years straight. I mean, if you include when he announces his candidacy, I mean that's a lot of work. It is. You got to give, uh, got to give him credit. You know, I, a lot of people love to bash folks that lose elections and make fun of them. Not me. Not me. Uh, I give credit to anybody that wants to put themselves out there before the public, invite the public scrutiny, and uh, beg everybody you know for money, be away from your family all that time. It's a tremendous sacrifice, honestly, to run for office. And I think the people that do it deserve deserve more than our scorn, even if they end up losing. In fact, especially if they end up losing. Because you could say the folks that uh, end up winning, at least they have a shining new political office to show for their efforts. The folks that end up losing don't have that. So I'll be looking forward to uh, hearing that. All right, without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us meet today's contestant, Ken in the Bronx. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. What uh, what finds you awake at this early hour, Ken? I get, I get up this time to go to work. All right. What, what, what line of work are you in? What field? I'm in the hospital. Oh, you, but you you're you work in the hospital. You're not. Uh, yes, I do. You're not no, a patient no, in, in the hospital. No, I work in the hospital. All I work right. in the hospital. All right. Okay. Well, um, you, are you familiar with the game? Yes, I am. Okay, great. So um, for people that uh, are not familiar with it, uh, you're going to have 10 uh, you're going to have 10 trivia questions to answer correctly. You're going to have 60 seconds to do it. And uh, we're going to start the timer after I ask you the first question. And if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next one so that we can try and get through all all 10 of these, okay? Okay. All right. Um, let's begin with name a shape. Vanilla. Uh, uh, okay, let's start again because I think maybe you misheard me. Since, uh, yeah, okay. Okay, so the, 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 the question is name a shape, S-H-A-P-E. Circle. What day of the week is election day? Tuesday. What month do we celebrate Independence Day in this country? July. What musical instrument did Liberace play? Piano. What is my favorite professional baseball team? The, oh, the, oh, the, oh, it's the Boston Red Sox. Definitely not. Definitely not, Ken. The Boston Red Sox. Uh, the the Mets. Come on, Ken. Meet the Mets. Greet the Mets. Head to the park and meet the Mets. Okay, okay, okay. The Red Sox. Me. Oh, come on, Ken. You have Mets fans and Yankee fans um, booing you. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to. Um, 
I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on hold. Give your information to Avery, and we'll try and uh, we'll give you a consolation prize. Matt, is that unfair? Is that an unfair question uh, for me to ask what my favorite baseball team was? No, because I talk about, about the Mets all a lot. The time. Right, so I feel like if he listens all the time, you know, I think he should. I mean, you would have whole thing it. about Mr. Matt. I mean, right, come right, on, right. yeah. Cause I, I feel bad because Ken was on a roll there, but you know, I, I, even if he didn't listen to this show. Why like, would you pick the Red Sox? Right, I feel like you got a one out of two chance yeah. if you just pick one of the New York teams. Absolutely. So, all right. So we don't feel any guilt about him losing. On no. All right. Well, he got he got four correct. But he got like five buzzers. One. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, so give your information to um, to Ken. Uh, I do feel bad. I always feel I feel bad when they they don't win because Ken seems like a nice guy. And uh, and I wish he would have won. But if you didn't get a chance to play today, better luck next time. If you're just tuning in, uh, not only are we only six hours away from the incredible interview that the whole world has been waiting for of Alec Baldwin interviewing on Instagram the one and only Woody Allen. That's going to be interesting. We also learned that... Um, that uh, it was Matt Blaze's birthday yesterday, and he really didn't do anything for it. Um, you know whose birthday it is today? A guy that I'm really hoping we can interview sooner rather than later for obvious reasons. Mel Brooks, Oscar and Emmy-winning uh, director, actor, writer, comic, and I think he won a Tony along the line somewhere, but certainly an Oscar and an Emmy. Mel Brooks, 96 years old today. In my view, he's my favorite director by far. You look at the films that he has made, and I think they're some of the funniest movies ever made. The favorite pre- Mel Brooks movie. You know, it's like I've. It's so difficult. You catch me today, I'm going to say one thing. If you catch me tomorrow, it's another. I I used to say it was Spaceballs. Then I went through a whole phase where it was Blazing Saddles. Then I went through a whole stage of my life where it was young Frankenstein. I think if you ask me today, it's the producers. Fair. What's yours? Fair. High anxiety. I love high anxiety. The, one of the first things I ever did on television was the Madeline Kahn Memorial Pie Eating Contest. <laughs> she is brilliant in that film. But so is everybody. So is uh, Cloris Leachman. So is, is obviously Mel Brooks. Uh, everybody is great in that in that fic- picture. And that song that Mel Brooks sings in the, um, you know, in, in that you know high anxiety, you win. He sings it brilliantly. Harvey Corman is great yeah. in that picture as well. That's a great film. Great film. And um, uh, and obviously, if you're a Hitchcock fan, it has an extra special, you know, an extra special resonance. You know who else's birthday it is today? Mike Lindell. I wish him a happy birthday on Facebook. He's 61 years old today. Um, I'm sure he is using his wish to see the 2020 election overturned. So if the election does get, end up getting thrown out and overturned, you know who to thank for that. Uh, John Elway's birthday today as well. And uh, also... Kathy Bates, 74 years old, a great actress, if ever there was one. Uh, Kathy Bates. Hey, you know what else is this week? I meant to mention this on Friday. I uh, had this on my list, and then I got 
wrapped up in talking about something else. What else is this week is it was two years ago this week that I came back to WABC after a 10-year hiatus. And initially I came back, I was doing a show on Sunday nights, and I was hosting the mid-morning show on uh, our sister station on Long Island, 107.1, where uh, there was a lot of great stuff on there, especially under Frank McKay's presidency out there. He's doing great, great stuff every night at 8 p.m. You could hear him out there. And uh, it's been, I can't believe it's been two years since I've been back. I feel like I came back two weeks ago. But uh, this show, which I've been grateful to have the opportunity to do since October of 2020, has really grown, and I've really enjoyed the opportunity to connect with all of you. But I really have to thank two people, John and Margot Katsimatidis. A lot of people wanted to bring me back to WABC earlier, our president, uh, Chad Lopez, even, I think, the former program director, Dave Labrosi. But uh, I really owe, and I've said this Many times. I really owe everything uh, to to John and Margot Katsimatidis. There's only, and uh, we've done whole segments on this, we've done, there's only a handful of people that you meet that change everything about your life. And honestly, I can tell you that uh, everything about my life would be different had John not given me the opportunity to do this show. And uh, I will, if I thanked him every day, it would not be enough. So um, happy anniversary to me, and uh, I appreciate you being so great in listening to the show. But my biggest thank you is to John and Margot for the opportunity to do the show. One quick note. Kraft Macaroni and Cheese has changed its name. Have you, found, have you seen this? Do you know what Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is now calling itself? Very clever. I don't know how many consultants they had to employ to come up with this new name. But the new name, the new name of Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is Kraft Mac and cheese. That's right. After 85 years in business, Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is dropping three syllables from its name. It's going from Kraft Macaroni and Cheese to Kraft Mac and Cheese. After 85 years, uh, they revealed the change in a press conference on Wednesday. Wow. The name change is part of a new brand identity. <laughs> what? A new brand identity? Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is wow, now Kraft wow, wow. Mac and Cheese, and they're claiming it's part of a new brand identity? What? It's uh, They've got a redesigned logo and a noodle smile illustration, and uh, they're calling it a new brand identity. The brand maintains its signature blue and red colors, while its typography, photography, iconography, and packaging are all updated. Kraft Mac and Cheese explained that the name change was made to reflect the way customers organically refer to the brand. Okay, I could provide that. It's almost like um, I think Kentucky Fried Chicken is officially KFC because I think a lot of people call it KFC. 
be like McDonald's changing its name to Mickey D's almost. So, yeah, uh, those of you that enjoyed the good old days of Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, well, the good old days are over. And Kraft Mac and Cheese is here to stay. Hey, speaking of food and ordering, so I, I you know, I got paid last Friday. I get paid every two weeks like a lot of people do. And I, I've said I'm just kind of right now in a cycle where I had a lot of bills, right? I had, uh, you know, I had my brother's wedding, which was in Hawaii, of course. And, of course, that's not just a, traveling to Hawaii and uh, paying and giving a wedding gift. It's, you know, all the money that you spend when you're in Hawaii. Then uh, essentially my, my cousin's wedding uh, the other day. Then a Father's Day gift. And, you know, just playing catch up, right? So, and just the bills that you get on a daily basis. We're paying a babysitter and mortgage and taxes. Yeah, I mean, you know what bills are, right? Uh, driving here every day, that that's half my paycheck right there. So uh, Friday when I got paid, I saw all, paid all the bills that I had to pay. And I saw essentially that I'm now out of money for the next two weeks. And I see what my American Express balance is. Now... American Express, the way it works, you know if you have an American Express card, you essentially have to pay it off every month. So my American Express balance is now I'm waiting for some reimbursements and stuff, so I'm you know I'm fine. Don't don't pass around a, a tin cup for me. But my American Express balance right now is essentially just enough to be covered by my ne- next paycheck. So I said to my wife over the weekend, I said, honey. Um, I don't want to order out at all or go out to eat for the next two weeks. And she said, okay, good. We got plenty of food. We can cook. You know, we'll be okay. Good. So that was the plan. And then here's what happened. My wife went and cleaned my office the other day. And you know you're in for tr- a trouble whenever you clean my office. And I ca- I didn't even recognize my own office when I went into it the other day. It looked so clean. I didn't know where everything was. I could actually see my desk. I had forgotten what my desk looked like. And my wife discovers some souvenirs that I had purchased for people when we went to Las Vegas in March of last year, March of 2021. I purchased a bunch of souvenirs for people. And, you know, it's a couple of mugs, a couple of other things. And now... I can't remember for the life of me who these souvenirs were intended for, but these souvenirs included a couple of Las Vegas mugs. So my friend uh, Brendan comes over on Saturday. I give him one of the mugs. He's happy to have it. Great. He forgets not only the mug, but his wallet at my house. So the next day, he sends his wife to go pick up his wallet. And I give her the mug. And Rachel says to his wife, is he allowed to have that? Because I know we have too many mugs. Frank's not allowed to have any more. And that's all the wife needed to hear, that there's sanctioned non-acceptance of mugs. She says, no, we actually have too many. We don't want it. So she doesn't let him accept the mug. So she says to me, no, you've got to find people that don't have all these mugs. Everyone has mugs. The only way you're getting rid of these mugs now is if you find someone that just moves somewhere that doesn't have a an abundance of mugs. And she said, somebody like my sister Deborah, who you'll remember, we moved one of uh, my couches and tables to her new residence in Tom's River. So I said, that's great. I text Deborah. I said, Rachel and I brought you back a mug 
from Las Vegas. Now, I didn't tell her it was 14 months ago and that she wasn't necessarily the intended recipient. But I said, we brought you back this mug from Las Vegas. Can you use it? Yes. I said, why don't you come over sometime and see your nephew, which, who you haven't seen in a while? She says, great. How about tomorrow? Meaning Monday. So, great. Come on over. So, and, you know, my sister-in-law is kosher. She's an observant Jew. So, we don't really have a kosher kitchen. Now, she's very strict kosher. Um, so, we don't really have a kosher kitchen. So, um, Deborah says to me, well, I'll order from I'll order from Holy Schnitzel, which is a kosher restaurant. I think it's a chain, uh, at least a small chain. So you can't have a, somebody that's a guest at your house ordering their own food. So I said, I will. I said to Rachel, I will order Deborah's meal from Holy Schnitzel, and the food is actually very good there. They have a lot of good stuff. So my goal of not ordering out for two weeks. My goal lasted for all of one day. <laughs> I was successful for precisely one day in my goal of not ordering food out. So it's going to be a long two weeks. <laughs> it certainly will. All right. Um, Kraft Mac and Cheese, is the uh, that is the nomenclature for your favorite mac and cheese that comes in a box. Am I right? Hey, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame next. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You can say whatever you want for 15 seconds. Straight ahead. WABC. Yes, The Other Side of Midnight from Stevie G and the Starlighters, a show, a song that is tearing up the charts, and uh, you can download it on iTunes. I think it would be hilarious if this song becomes the biggest hit in America, just based on our show. He made this song, Stevie G did, for our show, and uh, it's very popular. People really like it. Hey, you know what story I didn't get to today? I'm going to just tease you about this tomorrow is there is this shortwave radio station apparently out of Russia that nobody knows who owns this radio station nobody knows you know 
anything about what's broadcasting on this radio station. They're calling it a ghost radio station, but it broadcasts 24 hours, just like kind of a weird sound. I'm going to play you the sound that it broadcasts tomorrow so that we can explore some theories about what's going on. There's all sorts of theories about this station. It's it's bizarre. I got I went down this rabbit hole of exploring what people think this radio station might be. It's really wild. And you might even be able to hear it from wherever you happen to be. It's a shortwave station, which is a whole different ballgame. So that's going to be tomorrow. Ty DeLorean, who claims to be the son of John DeLorean, he's going to be here. He's also developed this this back-to-the-future-style DeLorean car, which he claims the Taliban wants to buy. And I think the company DeLorean is suing him over it. It's really wild. Obi Murray is going to be here tomorrow, too, for some post-election analysis. Uh, by the way, the polls open in one hour and six minutes here in New York. They're open from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m. If you're a Democrat or a Republican and you live in New York, please be sure to get out and vote. And um, if you are somebody that, uh, you know, is interested in local uh, local politics, even if you're not crazy about the candidates, there's a lot of competitive local elections as well. So uh, just try and, try and get out and vote. All right, 800-848-WABC. Time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let me begin with Timothy in Brooklyn. Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. New York State Registered Democrats. Vote Antonio Delgado, Lieutenant Governor, Assembly District 103. Vote Kevin Cahill. Stand up to the Socialists and the Dirty Mailers from the Working Families Party. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, mac and cheese? I think they're just trying to appeal to young people who are lazy toward English grammar. By the way, just like the phrase exact same, we should be saying exactly the same. Not exact same. Thank you. Uh, you know, I was waiting for somebody to call in and say the name change was due to anti-Italian bias. So far, no one has claimed that. Bob in New Haven. Hey, every time I pull into some little hick town, there's always some pencil neck geek hanging around. In the words of the great classy Freddie Blassie, right? Frankie in Glendale. I want to wish uh, uh, Giuseppe... Uh, from a Ronconco Mole, a very happy early birthday there. And my friend Anthony, Anthony, how you doing? 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 Mike in the Poconos. Too funny. Uh, Frank, I'm driving to a small town. I almost hit the biggest deer I ever saw in my life. It scared the crap out of me. Uh, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm glad. You know, the trip that you're talking about, try Long Beach with your family. Long Beach Boardwalk, the best in the country. And a shout-out to Giuseppe and Rakakaba. That's a great idea, actually, Long Beach Boardwalk. Billy in the Bronx. She's a moron, she's a moron, she's a moron. Eddie in New Jersey. 
They're multiplying. All right. Uh, why don't we end it there? I don't want a third uh, person calling in and saying the same thing. Stay tuned for the Bernie and Sid Show at 6 a.m., by the way. Guests include Bo Deedle and Doc Gooden, former great New York Met pitcher and New York Yankee pitcher, is going to be on with Bernie and Sid. I cannot wait to hear that. One of my great joys in working here over the last two years is I got to meet Doc Gooden when Margot Katsimatidis threw out the first pitch at the Cyclones game. And for a Met fan, that was such a thrill. But uh, the early news with Deb Valentine is next. Nobody's more informative. And uh, you're not going to want to miss any of the information she's giving you. I'll be back at 1 a.m. with full election results and analysis. Frank Moreno, good day.